Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I'm your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. Phew. Don't know about you, but we are all catching our breaths after the election and now quietly watching to see how the final votes settle out. I'll do a debrief with Marty on Media Matters a little later on in the show. First up, though, I catch up with Libby Emmons, Editor-in-Chief of The Post-Millennial. We'll discuss the big stories dominating the cultural landscape right now and the importance of continually speaking out and offering an alternative view. I then welcome back Rachel Stewart, writer and social commentator, who's back after being silenced. And it's not what you might think. We'll talk about the election, a new writing project, and getting back into the saddle. I then actually have a quick catch-up back with Karina Shields. She told me about a new fundraiser after we spoke on Monday, so I made sure I got her back so she could share that information with us. Media Matters, as I mentioned, will be along, and then I'll finish things up. Instead of Woke News of the Week, I will announce the winners of the copies of The Sad Truth About Happiness by Gad Sad by reading out the winning happiness hacks. It's now time to head down to Aotearoa Farm after the election. Winky Lux stands on the footsteps of the farmhouse. He's done it. His seat at the head of the farmhouse table is now. 
With his own head glowing in the early morning sunlight, Winky knows that the hard work is just beginning. Negotiations are still to be had. Whilst Winky and Davy Piglet have ironed out most of their goals for Aotearoa Farm, it may not be enough. And just as that thought wafted across out Winky's mind, a stir was afoot in the courtyard. Well, you can tell by the way that I use my walk. I'm a kiwi donkey, no time to talk. Chicken's loud and heart's warm. I've been kicked around since I've been gone. Now, it's all right. It's okay. You may look the other way. As we can try to understand Winnie Ben's love of hand. Whether you're a brother or whether you're a mother, I'm staying alive, I'm staying alive. Feel the chippy breaking and squealer shaking, I'm staying alive, I'm staying alive. Ah, 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 ah. Staying alive, staying alive. Winnie Ben just flashed a grin to Chippy and Squealer as they loaded up their belongings into the bright pink Robbo's removal van, gave a nod to Winky and a wink to Davy Piglet as he trotted past. Winky's uneasiness was justified. Under the regime of Napoleon and Chippy, many of the farm's youth had been quietly disappearing. The lambs had strayed into pastures habited by the free-range pigs, many eagerly encouraged by the fattened and compliant ewes and rams who saw a path to lusher pastures for their flock. The strategy had worked handsomely for the free-range pigs, with the youthful exuberance, naivete and sheer stupidity it delivered Shawshank and his feral free-range sows a larger sty and more feed. It appears that Chippy's loss was Shawshank's gain. It wasn't just Shawshank, however, that was profiting from the demise of the chipster. Tama. The shady kunikuni boar whose tusks prod and poke, his farmhouse twins Dave and Deb, have been quietly gathering up all the farm's pups. Fresh-faced and eager, Tama has been feeding them on tales of a twisted past of the farm's origins, and the young pups have been lapping up Tama's stories as sooth, eager to obey their new master. And obey they did. Tama sent out his young pups far and wide, and after the election, more kunikuni started arriving to the central farmyard, with even more possibly to come, as Snowball Henare and the old northern ball cow were only holding on to their pastures by the narrowest of margins. It appears that things aren't quite as clear-cut on Aotearoa Farm as Winky Lux may have hoped, and maybe Winnie Ben will be required to help him mow the lawn. Catch up next week to see what progress has been made by Winky, David and all the other animals in the farmyard at Aotearoa Farm, exclusively here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome to Gun to Culture here with Marie on Reality Check Radio. Joining me now is Editor-in-Chief from the Post-Millennial, Libby Emmons. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm very, very well this morning. And I got you on board because the Post-Millennial, if our readers aren't aware of it, is a publication that I love and I reference all the time because you look at news and events from a full spectrum and a full lens that often is not seen elsewhere in legacy media. So just explain to people from your perspective what the post-millennial is and the sort of things that you cover for the for your readers. 
Sure. Well, the Post Millennial is a breaking news and culture outlet. We were actually founded in Montreal, in Quebec, in Canada, um, I think in 2018. I came on board in 2019. And our original mission, which still is with us, was to look at the situations with the culture wars, to um, look at cancel culture, which was definitely a huge deal in Canada in the United States then with the Me Too movement and also pushback against gender identity, ideology, and all of that sort of thing. Uh, so that's really that's really what we're about. And we have stuck with that mission while we have grown. Mm. And um, And you cover stories too you'll dig into stories, particularly around those culture stories, because often you will only see one face of many of those stories. And I want to touch on some of those now. So um, Russell Brand, I think, is the first obvious one to start with. You've been tracking this since the beginning. Have they have they even charged him with anything yet? No, and that is something that I think is really important to recognise. Accusation is not guilt. Accusing someone of something does not mean they are guilty of that. Uh, being friends with someone who has been accused of something does not mean you are a bad person or guilty of anything at all. And I think that that's very important to note. A lot of specifically men in the United States, the UK, I don't know how it is in New Zealand necessarily, but also in Canada, have lost their careers, their relationships, um, their professional standing their reputations, their ability to find new employment, simply because they have been accused of uh, sexual misdeeds. And in a lot of cases, these sexual misdeeds are um, very ambiguous. They are vague and they do not rise to the level of criminality. If Russell Brand has committed violent acts of rape or, you know, any of these kinds of things that are criminal, then he should be charged. If he has not <laughs> done those things, you know, or if there's no probable cause, then he should not be charged and he should essentially be left alone. The issue with the Russell Brand case that I find so compelling and interesting is that the um, women who spoke up, I believe there were four women who spoke up against him. Three of them were anonymous. One was a former girlfriend. And they all said that they would not have spoken up had they not been contacted by a reporter digging into Brand's past. So they very specifically said uh, to that reporter, oh, you know, we were not going to speak up until you contacted us. And now, now we will speak up. And the report also said that... Um, these women said they were compelled to speak up now because of Russell Brand's newfound success as essentially a culture warrior, someone who is debunking mainstream narratives. So those two things were particularly suspect to me. And as that dragging of Russell Brand continued, it, we saw the media play an even bigger role in not only trying to destroy Russell Brand, but to destroy anyone associated, any of the companies associated with Russell Brand. So shortly thereafter, you had NBC contacting sponsors of brands on YouTube, um, companies like Burger King or HelloFresh, and asking those companies if they would disavow Russell Brand. 
these companies were not going to speak up, most likely. They probably were not even aware of it, of the situation, until they were contacted by NBC. Because I know Rumble were asked by a British senior British conservative politician to deplatform him, and mm-hmm. they declined. Go, Rumble. Mm-hmm. And then, so that NBC reporter then contacted those uh, advertisers to put pressure on Rumble. Is that how, that's how I read it? Or yeah, did they- so it started with contacting brands, um, sponsors on YouTube, oh. many of whom said, no, you're right. We're not going to continue with Russell Brand. There was one company that was like, is he being accused of something in a criminal situation? Because otherwise we know he has powerful enemies and we're not going to pull our advertising just because NBC told us to. And then, yeah, as you said, the um, a group of MPs contacted a number of companies saying, are you going to disavow Russell Brand streaming companies like TikTok, I believe, and some other platforms? And Rumble now famously declined to deplatform Brand. And what was very interesting is after that, after Rumble's Chris Pavlosky, again, that's a Canadian company, and I, I applaud them for standing on their values. After Rumble was contacted and by the MPs in the UK and said outright that they would not pull brand off their platform. Um, a, a, a news company called The News Movement, which was founded, I believe, in 2020, launched last year. It was founded by some people who used to be with the Dow Jones and the BBC. They contacted Rumble's advertisers and said, are you going to pull your support from Rumble because Rumble won't pull Russell Brand off the platform? This was a media-coordinated strike against a man who debunks mainstream media narratives. It could not be more clear to me that that's what went on here. It's incredible that they're still pulling this stuff. I mean, surely, from a corporate perspective, have lessons not been learned from the Mulvaney Bud Light debacle? (laughs) In fact, Dylan Mulvaney was just named Woman of the Year by Attitude Magazine in the UK, which is a premier gay magazine um, globally. So no, no one has learned any lessons from uh, from the Dylan Mulvaney debacle, except perhaps Bud Light, who is still tanking because of that. Uh, but what's, what's I think key to note as well is that these companies that have been platforming these ridiculous ideas, like the concept that men can be women just just, just because they say so. Just, oh, I'm this other thing now. Oh, okay. Everyone now believe you and bow down to you and give you awards. Um, these ideas have been pushing through since the late 80s and into the early 90s, and they have just been allowed to fester. So, for example, at Target, that brand um, has been partnering with an organization called Glisten, G-L-S-E-N, which is a global indoctrinate gender identity indoctrination group that pushes curriculum into schools worldwide, instructing children that they should they could switch gender and that uh, virginity is a meaningless concept. You know all of these all of these other things. Disney has been partnering with Glisten for a long time as well. All of these groups, all of these companies back the Trevor Project. 
which at the post-millennial, we had a mom um, who went undercover with the Trevor Project in a chat and discovered that they are perfectly willing to help you transition, but they uh, will essentially kick you out and tell you they have no resources for you if you are attempting to detransition. It is a, just a topsy-turvy upside world that we now live in. So from a brand, from brand's perspective, I mean, this is still unfolding. I understand the police are investigating, which in itself is creating sugar. And I think for many Brits, considering that they are looking into these sort of hearsay type allegations, and yet so many crimes are left uninvestigated in the, in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Kevin Spacey went through a similar situation that, was protracted over a number of years. He got caught up uh, at that sort of at the tail end of the wave of the Weinstein wave, mm-hmm. and he had his day in court and he was vindicated. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. He was he was really um, smeared here in the U.S. as well, really quite a lot, because the people who came after him were uh, very prominent themselves in the you know theater and film community. So what is the mood from people within the cultural element? Because this is becoming so regular now that there are now, initially you would have these events, a cancellation would happen and there would be no recall sought for the person that was the victim of the cancellation. But things have moved on in the last five to seven years and Uh people are more aware of the tactic and brand has been stout in his defence. He's not apologised, he's not acquiesced, he's been very stout in his defence. What do you think is the path forward for him? Well, I think that if it were not for the emergence over the last few years of more of a parallel economy in social media um, and discourse, Russell Brand would have no, no path forward at all. But because we now have Rumble, because, um, you know, Twitter, now stupidly called X, has opened up and been a, become more of a free speech platform, then there is a way to get information out there that is not being, you know, filtered through this legacy media, corporate media, mainstream media perspective. And that's been really fascinating to see that some of these voices that you would not have seen one year ago, two years ago, certainly not five years ago, are now able to breach that endless sea and get out there and be seen. So I think that Brand's path forward probably means a lot less money for him because there is less money on the parallel economy side. Um, There's less companies and there's less resources, but they are growing and they are building. And I'm very glad to see that. So I think his best path forward is probably tighten his belt a little bit, stick with Rumble, stick with Twitter, and keep going. Mm, Surf it out. He has an audience, you know. Mm, Yeah, yeah. he has an audience. Yeah. So he can, if that audience will stick with him, then he he should be all right. You've sort of touched on a touchstone in in a sense because online censorship. I know you were on a panel fairly recently that discussed this. Online censorship is something that we are aware of down here because our illustrious or not former prime minister. It's a little project of hers and she's currently sure on, yeah and she's currently on fellowship in harvard so glad she's not here anymore but it, she's you know i'm spreading. disappointed she's here oh <laughs> uh, yeah yeah she's spreading the love she's spreading the love yeah uh, don't send don't send a back Libby. you can keep her you can keep her <laughs> okay. she had an attempt whilst she was in office 
to greatly restrict free speech in this country. And it was pretty stoutly resisted and pushed back by the founders of this radio station along with Free Speech Union and and other non-profit organisations that really worked incredibly hard to get the fangs of that digital harms bill reduced significantly, and, and they did so. They've now got a discussion document out with a different government department in a way to sort of like, okay, well, that didn't work, let's try something else. And I see that there is a sameness with this information, and I'm picking it's coming from the work that she's doing around Christchurch Call with some of these leaders to try and stelch and quell speech on these alternative platforms and the newly expanded loosening of X. So what are some of the things that you're seeing over there in terms of an attempt to silence people? Well, we watched the unfolding Jacinda Ardern uh, squashing of free speech with interest and horror, and we reported on that. She was, you guys know this, she reached out to uh, prime ministers and presidents all over the world to try and get them to quell freedom of speech, you know, after the the horrific terror attack that you had there. And it's very easy to look at a, a horrific act like that, something that is so vile, and to say, we need to stop this from ever happening again. And the way to do that is by preventing people who may have these perspectives from speaking. It's very easy to say that. But it's also exactly the wrong thing to do, and it won't actually stop things like that from happening again anyway. So by restricting citizens under the guise of restricting terrorists, you're actually just restricting everybody and you're not preventing terrorists from doing anything at all. So we saw here in the U.S. and certainly Canada has its own issues because Justin Trudeau is uh, you know, separated at birth, perhaps from Jacinda Ardern, very similar. In oh, yeah, he is t- the brother from another mother. Trust me. <laughs> oh, he—he's absolutely a terror himself in terms of restricting Canadians' rights, uh, calling parents and um, truckers who just wanted to have COVID restrictions lifted, calling them, you know, hateful and all of these, you know, pick your phobic word. He was using it against them. But yeah, here in the U.S., we certainly saw the Biden administration, which I am no fan of, attempting to and successfully colluding with social media companies and with press to define narratives that were the acceptable narratives and to uh, squash anything that went in opposition to that. So if you spoke out on Twitter, if you said things, for example, like, you know, we have this trans assistant secretary to the Department of Health and Human Services. His name is Rachel Levine. He was a pediatrician. He was married. He fathered children before he left his wife and decided to present as female. Uh, became, you know, an admirable admiral with the public health service or something, whatever. Anyway, if you say that he's a man on Twitter, or if you did, then your account would be suspended. Jordan Peterson referred to an actress who had gone from female to male by her original name, her given name, and he was suspended on Twitter. So we saw a lot of this, and it was especially prevalent with 
discussions of COVID, where the idea was that the Biden administration knew everything about COVID and there were no other alternatives. You had to get your government-sponsored vaccine 15,000 times before you were allowed to dine in a restaurant in New York City and all of these ridiculous things. Uh, So we did see that. There was not enough pushback by the American people at the start, for sure. And as a free speech advocate, which I consider myself you know, the First Amendment in the United States that protects freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, the freedom to peaceably assemble, and the freedom to petition your government for a redress of grievances. I will stand on that to my dying day, no matter what. That is huge for me. That is hugely, hugely important, those things. And during COVID, the government pushed back. They quelled freedom of speech. They closed our churches and synagogues. They uh, manipulated the press very successfully. They withdrew our right to peaceably assemble, and they specifically made it very difficult to petition our government for a redress of our many, many grievances. By the time the Supreme Court caught up to the closure of churches, saying that it was an absolute violation of our First Amendment rights, the churches had been opened and the government in New York, because it was many states that limited church access, the government in New York was like, what? It's it's done now anyway. So these are places like Governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan left casinos open. She closed churches. Yeah, She was the one that wasn't she, um, yeah, left casinos open, but you couldn't go to the garden center to plant garden. Is that the one? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was her. They Mm -hmm. were tying up swing sets. They were arresting moms for bringing their kids to the playground. They were telling us to get these COVID shots. They were telling us to get our food delivered. Um, They were, gyms were closed. So they were basically turning us into these fat babies sitting on our couches, unable to, you know, exist in a real way. There was a, I no longer live in New York City, but I'm, you know, definitely a New Yorker and I, you know, love the city. And there was this absolutely disgusting display on New Year's Eve 2020, 2021, maybe, or was it 2020, whatever, whenever it was during that period of time that is now indistinguishable from any period of time within it, you know, but there was this moment, it was New Year's Eve, And the city, New York City, has this uh, ball drop every year. It's this whole big deal. It's broadcast on television. It's a big celebration for New Year's Eve. It's something the city is well known for. The city said, no, you can't hang out in Times Square in the freezing cold this New Year's Eve. And instead, what they did was they they had the mayor, they had the full mayor go out into Times Square and dance in the in the empty Times Square with his wife. And me and my son are sitting there. We made brownies at midnight because, you know, what are you going to do when you have a little kid at home and you want to stay up all night and make brownies? I, we weren't going to be in Times Square anyway. But here he was dancing around with his wife like some ridiculous dictator that takes all of the beauty of the city for himself and tells us all to just stay home. I was appalled. And you actually saw mainstream media. You saw CNN. I forget who it was, Anderson Cooper and someone else whose name I forget. But they were out there intoxicated, freaking out about Mayor Bill de Blasio and his wife, Charlene McRae, just dancing it up while the rest of us were stuck home. So I do wish that Americans had been more vocal Mm -hmm. at the outset. 
but I am glad that they finally got their feet un- under them and opened their mouths. I get this sense, well, I'd like to think that you wouldn't be fooled again. And we're very, we're a very easy, easy, peaceable people. And what stunned me was how readily we complied to regulations that were Oh, me too. Openly, I mean, and when they locked us down, it wasn't even legal to do so. So as a New Zealander, you could have, in those first few weeks, you could have actually gone, no, actually, no. I know you would like us to stay home, but we're not going to. And they couldn't do anything about it. But that was all suppressed. Everyone believed that it was legal until someone actually looked it up and challenged it. And then they had to rush legislation through. And it was it was just dreadful, but I hope lessons have been learned. So, and one of the things that I've discovered from a cultural perspective, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, it's interesting what will wake people up in the middle. Those that sort of, I think I mentioned it to you before we got started. The culture wars is a little bit like one of those I3D puzzles, you know, those optic illusion puzzles mm-hmm. that you could stare at and stare at and stare at and say, I don't see anything. And then all of a sudden you relax your eyes and boom, this other three-dimensional world appears and the culture wars is a bit like that once you see it you can't unsee it and people are starting to see it and what's woken them up here is because so much was rushed through during COVID while everybody was distracted and locked down and force-fed a government regime of media things were slipped into like the education system and Mm -hmm. the corporate system and the public system of these cultural war elements and entrenched so when you sort of came out they were there like it was the the gaslight was like oh no those were always there no you no you they were always there and particularly the gender issues so in this country the gender issues have woken a lot of people up and the Mulvaney incident to me I think was one that woke a lot of middle America up yeah it did yeah because you have this this man parading around calling himself a girl Clearly someone who had a failed entertainment career prior to that, his previous TikToks were, uh, you know, sort of like hanging out with animals, you know, talking to animals. Uh, He had a stint on The Price is Right where, I mean, he's very clearly a very flamboyant gay man. Okay, that doesn't make you a woman. A huge part of the gay rights movement was to say, hey, if you're a very flamboyant gay man, You're not any less of a man than any other man. Now the gay rights movement apparently says that if you are a flamboyant gay man, you are probably wrong. You are probably just a woman. I think it's no surprise that some of the most uh, tolerant nations for gender transition are very strictly religious Islamic nations where they cannot tolerate homosexuality, but they're perfectly happy to let you cut your dick off and say that you're a woman. This is absolutely absurd. You know, I mean, to say to a gay man, you're not really a gay man. You're actually just a straight woman. I mean, what an offensive thing to do after the struggle of the gay rights movement, which was wildly successful here in the United States. And it's like all these organizations that were so happy to cash checks on behalf of the oppressed were not ready to give up their not-for-profit status and give up their business model because they had succeeded. So they decided to switch to trans stuff. That's true of the human rights campaign here which had as its raison d'etre to get gay marriage passed. Well, gay marriage was passed and they kept going. 
And now they want to make sure that kids get uh, growth stunting, sterilizing drugs so that they can look more like the opposite sex when they're grown up. There's all kinds of crazy concepts behind this. There's, you know, and if you look at it closely, you have the pharmaceutical industry, which creates lifelong medical patients for very expensive drugs that they would have to maintain for the rest of their lives, very expensive surgeries that they would have to undergo in order to maintain their their appearance. And it's an appearance thing. Nobody changes sex. That's not actually scientifically possible. Instead, what you do is you alter your appearance to appear as and attempt to be perceived as the opposite sex. That's what this is all about. It's all about spending money to do that, but it doesn't actually change you. And the concept of the you know, transgender child is a lie that is being perpetrated on parents and children who would likely just outgrow it or be gay or be lesbian or dress however they please. When I was coming up, if a little girl had short hair and overalls, that didn't make her any less Mm -hmm. of a girl. It just meant she wanted to wear short hair and overalls. I used to come home, you know, covered in mud after wandering through the woods and the marshes with my cousin. You know, I'd come home with like ticks on my my parents would like take them off. You know, I was was a mess, you know, because I was a little kid, just wanted to muck around in the woods. I wonder now what would happen with something like that? Like you're a little little girl that wants to muck around in the woods. And the next thing you know, they're cutting your breasts off and telling you, you don't ever get to be a mother, which I just think, I just think it's so horrifying. And we see these cases of young women who went through this. Now we'll never be able to nurse children. And it's hard enough to nurse children, even if you didn't go through that. I mean, it's like, It doesn't always work out, you know, it's difficult. Mm. The whole bastion, you're a mother, I'm a mother, the whole bastion of motherhood is under attack. Yes, it really is. And you have these men who are like, I'm the mother now because I'm taking estrogen so I can nurse this baby and give her whatever slop is being secreted from my body. I mean, it's just a horror. I didn't know I wanted to be a mother until I was, I think, 34 And I thought to myself, you know, and I was married and I thought to myself, you know, I don't know if I want to be a mother, but I am not ready to say no to God's love. If there's more love for me in this life, then I'm going to be open to that. And I am like, you know, I am a little bit sappy. That is true. But I could cry literally every day looking at my son who is 13. You know, I'm just so, I'm so grateful every day that I have the opportunity to be in this person's life, to mother this person, to know him, you know, to experience. I mean, when you're a mom, right, you experience the world so differently because you you can see into the future. I always felt like at a certain point I would hit a certain age and there would be more life behind me than there was ahead and I would just be looking back. And now I can see into the future for generations. Mm. I really do wonder that I look at all of these couples that, I mean, they make a decision not to have family and so many women are just unable to, uh, yeah. you know, fertility, particularly once you're over 30, it's it can be a bit of a, a nightmare and a battle and you may not have the right person to have a child with and it's difficult to do it on your own. There's so many barriers. And I do wonder, you know, with there's already a loneliness epidemic, how lonely will it be for this oh. next generation coming through that have no one, as you said, in front of them to look towards and care for. It does worry me. 
Mm. It just seems very sad. Yeah. I say to my son, like, don't forget someday, give mommy some grandbabies. <laughs> so other things that have sort of transpired, which is seeing things change, particularly out of the COVID crisis, is I see Robert F. Kennedy Jr. did what I thought he should have done all along and mm-hmm. announced his independence and running as an independent candidate. Hardly surprised. I mean, the Democrats did kind of, you would never know that he was running if you were looking no. at legacy media. Uh, how has that been received? Well, I think it depends on where you are. The Democrats aren't crazy about him because they worry that he'll take votes away from the um, incredibly rapidly aging Joe Biden. The conservatives aren't crazy about him because they're worried that he will take votes away from Donald Trump, who is, of course, seeking a second term, you know, after not not getting elected the last time. So no one is really super on board. Uh, Also, in (laughs) know this sounds ridiculous, but in such a media heavy culture, the fact that he has that voice issue doesn't help Mm. him get out there very much. But I think he does have his fans. The issue he runs into with conservatives is that he's very pro-abortion and the conservative movement in the United States is incredibly opposed to abortion. The issue he runs into with Democrats is that he questions everything that they have said over the past 50 years, including who killed his uncle and his father um, and what that was all about. So I don't think he has much of a chance to win. I think all he really has a chance to do is disrupt some campaigns and we'll see what happens there. That being said, as we head into this most bizarre election season that I've ever seen, we have a president who is not clearly fit to run for another term, just quietly. Really, really not fit to run for another term. His vice president is entirely out to lunch She keeps repeating the same phrases over and over, you know, talking about how she's unburdened by what might have been. She's horrible. Nobody likes her ever. Even when she was running for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020, the most she ever got was 3% of the vote. The only reason she was selected as vice president is because she's a black woman. Well, I was just about to say, isn't she living not proof of the dangers of a diversity hire? Yes. And there are certainly many, many, many more qualified black women to be president than Kamala Harris. I spoke to Trevor Loudon <laughs> the other week, and he said he reckons that they're jonesing for Michelle Obama. Yeah, so this is something that people have said, and maybe they are. I don't necessarily see it. I just don't know. And it's very perplexing now to watch because you also have Biden's Department of Justice. The Department of Justice comes under the executive branch, which is the White House. You have his Department of Justice prosecuting his political opposition with two cases uh, at the federal level, both of which, if you dig into those cases, are entirely absurd. One of the cases is prosecuting Trump for having left office with classified documents, which he did as president. There is this thing called the Presidential Records Act, which gives presidents the discretionary ability to determine what is personal and what is presidential and should go to the archives. Okay, so there's some questions. Joe Biden left the Senate with classified documents. He put them in his garage. He left the vice presidency with classified documents. Neither of those offices is permitted to take classified documents anywhere, let alone to leave them strewn about in the garage next to your Corvette. 
those are issues. And he had those documents from way before. So whether or not Trump should have taken them or not, it's Joe Biden's Department of Justice is prosecuting Trump for a crime that he himself has committed. That really seems not only hypocritical, but unlawful and somehow authoritarian and totalitarian Mm -hmm. as well. The other case, he's being prosecuted for the essentially the January 6th riot at the Capitol, uh, which began as his as Donald Trump's speech, his last rally as president, his very into the rallies uh, was wrapping up. A lot of people say that that means Donald Trump should not be able to run for president under what's called the 14th Amendment, which prohibits anyone from who has been convicted of insurrection or sedition from running for president. Not only has Trump not been convicted of insurrection or sedition, he's not being charged with those things. So this is a completely, if you will, trumped up charge as well. Plus, he's being prosecuted for two other criminal cases, as well as a civil case in New York City. It doesn't seem reasonable that you should be able to prosecute your political opposition for a whole bunch of charges while you're running against them for president. So it's a very bizarre time in American politics, and it's hard to see which way is going to turn up. The other problem we have is the huge gulf between conservatives and Democrats. I mean, it is a huge rift. It's gotten really huge. large. I I lived there in the late 80s, early 90s, and I'm, you know, everyone sort of rubbed along together and it was and I was in Ohio, which was fairly evenly split between the two. Now it's right. like this chasm. Oh, it's crazy. When I was a kid, my my stepmom and my dad, my stepmom was a Democrat, and my dad was a Republican. And now and then they'd argue about Ronald Reagan at the dinner table, like whatever, not a big deal. Just in, And now we have articles that come out that say, if you're a Democrat, you can't date a Trump supporter. You know, friends of mine who do online dating, they'll see a thing that says no Trump supporters, you know, or like, uh, you know, why you should break up with your boyfriend if he's a conservative. Like all of these things, mm-hmm. you have Hillary Clinton having called everyone deplorables, you know, you have all of these things. And you have also half the country voted for Donald Trump, 75 million People voted for Trump and like another half of them voted for Joe Biden. I don't have my numbers exactly correct. But the leftist side really, really hates the conservative side and calls them all these names. Uh, Hillary Clinton recently came out and I voted for her in 2016. You know, I was a gung-ho feminist and whatnot. She came out recently and said that they needed to be formally deprogrammed formally deprogrammed. So then you have everyone saying Hillary Clinton wants to send conservatives to re-education camps, which is not really far off from what she said. So I I, I don't know how we bridge this gap. Mm. And it's something I look at every day at the Post Millennial. We run all these stories. We dig into them. You know, I don't know that anyone on the left ever sees the work that we do, or if Mm. it's just totally tuned out from what they see. It's certainly a tactic that they use. It's left, but also their cult, what I call the cultural left too, because they use the same cancelling, the same dehumanisation. All of those ploys are used to sort of strengthen their position, which then leads me, and I, I, I mean, I don't want to dive into it too much because it is such a fluid situation, but the conflict currently in Israel, and I have a number of um, people I've interviewed here who are Jewish New Zealanders, and 
it's Judaism is a, is a really interesting thing for me because it straddles that cultural fence in the sense that those who are proponents of social justice will very very happily brandage someone as anti-Semitic and try and protect uh, anyone with Jewish faith, and yet on the other hand, they'll be extensively pro-Palestine. In the United Kingdom, I definitely know there have been protests on uh, both sides, pro-Israel and pro-Palestine. Have you seen that in the in the United States? Is there a fissure point between the conundrum oh, sure. between the yeah. two sides? Yeah, yeah, it's not great. It's really it's not great. And as you say, it is a long-standing ally, the United States and Israel. Um, since Israel was founded in what, like, was it 49? Yeah, 47, 49, something like that. Something like that. The U.S. has stood firmly for the right of the Israel state to exist and for the right of Jews to not be exterminated. That's like a, that's a huge deal, right? We fought the Nazis and the whole thing. So despite Canada having recently honored a Nazi in parliament, which, wow. Oops. Wow. (laughs) That was nuts. Yeah, but there definitely is a rift because you have much of the Democratic Party, specifically the progressives like uh, some of our more prominent congresswomen, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Cori Bush, and some others have been very vocally pro-Palestine over the years, Palestinian, pro-Palestinian over the years. Uh, we don't recognize Palestine as a state, but so we don't, you know, don't tend to say that, but Yeah, they've been very pro-Palestinian. And of course, Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005. And the people of Gaza elected Hamas to be the government. They say it's the political wing of Hamas and not the terrorist wing of Hamas. But of course, there is a terrorist wing of Hamas. Uh, Just like, you know, with Sinn Féin in Ireland, there was the political wing and then there was the terrorist wing. But I mean, come on. Like you're you're talking, you know, you got each other's number on speed dial. Like it's not there. There can't be that big of a gulf. You have seen some difficulty because you've had some of these congresswomen and you know congresspeople trying to walk back their comments about being pro-Palestinian while trying to equivocate the atrocities committed in Gaza and the atrocities committed in Israel. And I think that it's true. This is something that you know, people have said for a long time, if Palestinians put down their weapons, there would be peace. If Israelis put down their weapons, they would be massacred. This was an attack on civilians. It was an attack on children and women and grandmas and people just living their lives. And as an American, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not Jewish. You know, I have plenty of Jewish people in my family and among my friends. We do have a close relationship with Israel. There's an awful lot of Israeli Americans. There's an awful lot of Israelis who come spend time in the U.S. And so it has been a very difficult conflict to cover because I hadn't really realized until last night when I fell asleep rather early. uh, I was like, I am exhausted from this from looking at this, from having your your international friends butchered. It feels very similar to if there was an attack on, on the UK, which of course the US has a very close relationship with the UK as we should, you know, that they founded us essentially, mm-hmm. you know, where we get our uh, legal system in a lot of ways. Yeah, but there has been a rift. You have this movement called BLM, Black Lives Matter, which has been pro-Palestinian over the years, which has gained support from most well-known American corporations, from government leaders, from activists and all of this stuff. 
and they have been very pro-Palestinian. There were some of the BLM offshoots that were saying basically, yay Hamas. And you had the main faction of BLM saying, whoa, hold on. We didn't say yay Hamas. But if you dig back into the founder's history, Patrice Cullors, for one, in 2015, was calling for freedom for Palestinians and all of very pro-Palestinian. You also see some real issues on our college campuses. Harvard, UPenn, uh, George Mason I saw today, and a lot of universities across the country, which have been infiltrated by Marxists since the you know 70s and 80s, who have been pushing this anti-Israel sentiment. So you have these kids walking around thinking that they're actually the opposite sex, taking a bunch of weird drugs and saying that Israel should be eradicated. And they use the slogan from the, what is it, from the river to the sea? And maybe they don't realize that what they're calling for or what they're supporting is the idea of mass, massive genocide. Yeah, and you brought that up. So one of the yeah. things I've always had an issue with with the transgender movement is their concept of transgenocide. And it gets bandied around all the time mm. as, as to shut down a conversation that you can't say anything against them because you are participating in the transgenocide. What's going on in Israel right now was genocide, people. Entire families, yeah. festivals, hundreds of people slaughtered. Mm-hmm. That's a genocide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're worried about whether or not someone is going to take away the right to use a bathroom. Yes. And there is no transgenocide. The numbers that they bandy about as to the crimes against trans people were sourced from male to female sex workers in Brazil. That's where they get the numbers. Male prostitutes who dress like women in Brazil were getting killed. And suddenly we have a transgenocide in the United States. I don't think so. Also, if you start digging into the murders of trans people here in the United States, what you find are not biased crimes against trans people. What you find is domestic violence, which, I mean, let's face it, takes the lives of many more women globally and in the United States and in Canada and in Mexico and in Brazil than, you know, trans people. You find domestic violence, you find drug crimes. You find uh, crimes that are often associated with poverty. That's what you find. That's the kind of crime against trans people. That's the kind of murder that we're talking about. Is it tragic? Of course, it's tragic. But it's not bias crimes against trans people. It's not these hate crimes. They are touted as hate crimes in the aggregate, even though if you look at them, they are not They are not that. Well, Libby... This has been absolutely fascinating. So about for our listeners, where do they find more information? They're thinking, oh gosh, this is a new source I really want to check out. How do they find uh, the post-millennial? And whereabouts do you guys hang out from an interactive perspective? Well, you can find me at Libby Emmons on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram at Libby.Emmons, but mostly it's just pictures of me traveling around places. You can also find the post-millennial at Postmillennial on Twitter. And our website is thepostmillennial.com. We're always very into having new members and subscribers. And you could go to thepostmillennial.com slash subscribe to sign up there. And we're hoping to have more content for members only coming soon. But yeah, we would love to have more readers in New Zealand. Oh no, fantastic. It'll be great to get you back too as things unfold in this 
ever-changing world in which we live. Thank this you so great. much, Marie. Oh, no, it has just been so great to have you. And don't disappear here on Counterculture. More great content yet to come, including my old mate, Marty. We're going to be doing our rundown post-election, so don't disappear for that. That is not to be missed here on RCR. Libby is a powerful writer and speaker. She appears as a regular on Timcast IRL and is one of the clearest voices cutting through the cultural clutter in North America right now. If you have any feedback on my interview with Libby, please send me your thoughts to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie on Reality Check Radio. I cannot believe it's been six months in between drinks, but it has. Rachel Stewart from Riding Shotgun is back. And you're back in the saddle, my friend. I'm back in the saddle. You always get back on your horse. That's what you have to do in life. Yeah, yeah. So good to have you back on. And oh man, I I can't believe it's been six months since we've been. Has it been six? I thought it was probably longer. It's been a very long winter for me. And as I was just telling you before, I lost my um, voice thinking, oh, it's just laryngitis. And then it went on and on for five months. And it was a paralyzed vocal cord. So about three weeks ago, I had a coughing fit and I must have put it back online somehow. And here I am. (laughs) <laughs> and about eight, eight reboot, yes. reset and about 80% back. So I'm a little bit frail in the voice, but um, compared to how it's been where I haven't been able to speak at all, uh, it's brilliant. I'm feeling a lot better about things. Yeah, yeah. And I noticed, and of course, because of course I've been checking in with you across that time to see where you've been at. And then I saw you uh, started writing again, which is awesome. Obviously, you're feeling a lot better. We're heading into the spring and the summer. What are some of the things that you sort of, what's tickling your fancy to write about, do you think? Oh, it's, you know, I'm going to be absolutely honest with you and tell you that it's absolutely non-political, basically because the world is so effed Mm. um, and everything is upside down. I'm always wanted to write essays and I've completed a few over winter. And so it's 10 essays, just vignettes of my life, which tells people why I've become the problematic and difficult person they see before them today. So basically it just, I'm taking 10 stories that I think are worth telling uh, in an essay type style. Yeah, and I thought it was time, you know, I was a columnist for 10 years and I had to work to deadlines. And it's been such a, it's been a bad thing and a good, it's been a bad thing in a way because it stopped me writing once I gave up being a columnist. But the good thing is that I realise now that I only was a columnist really so I could just write. Mm. You know, sometimes my opinions, I look back on them and think, oh my God, mind you, the world's changed since I wrote them. But um, it was always about the writing. And so this is about writing and I need to, tell some stories before I die. And there are so many great stories out there too. Yeah, there are. And if people know how to write, then you've got the world at your fingertips. And I thought, well, my partner's been nagging me for years, and I mean nagging. And I just thought, I need this nagging to stop. So um, that sounds terrible, but it's the truth. And Because she just thinks I'm a star. I don't necessarily think that myself, but she just thinks it's good for me to write, and she's right. Mm. And I, I just needed to get off the chuff and and do these stories. So that's that's what I've done. And mm. I've decided to make it on my writing shotgun. If you want those essays, one a month coming through in the next 12 months, I've put a pay thing up, not much, because, you know, I want to be rewarded for some of it. And I've had pledges from lots and lots of people to pay. So I'm really pleased about that. Oh, that's fantastic. That mm. is fantastic. Well, yeah, you know, as you know, I can't do any mainstream stuff because A, I don't want to, and B, they don't want me. 
Well, I mean, looking at it, it you know, I was talking to uh, Marty, who I do my media matters with, and he's an ex-Juno himself. And mm-hmm. so both of us had a stint, it was 90s for me, uh, early 2000s for him. Then we've sort of gone off and done other things. And we've both mm-hmm. come back to it with the station. And it's interesting, you know, when you because the difference in time from then to now in one of the things I said to him the other day, like I was a bit glum, you know, I was actually really fractious the other weekend. And what it was, was I have to follow the election campaign. I've always been very politically engaged, but it was the swing in the media. And it took me, I was really angry with myself because it took me a few days to put my finger on it. They, I got triggered because they went back to that fear mechanism that had mm. been deployed d- during COVID to try and sway voters' decisions heading into the last week of the campaign of the election. And I thought, you bastards, how do you do that? Absolutely. And once you see it, and once you know the tactic, and you and I both do, you can't not see it. And so the respect for the media was so low, apart from you guys, really, um, who were changing the game. And I just talked to so many people, now that I can talk, people are seeing it. People are actually seeing this now. The, you know, the average person is now realising just how biased the media is and how our mainstream media in New Zealand is directing us down a particular channel for what they want. It's, it's very off-putting. And I don't ever want to work for mainstream New Zealand stuff anymore while this continues. But I suspect we're going to see very soon uh, after the election some toppling of some of these media giants. I think stuff's on the way. Well, and NZ Me too, I think, is experiencing yeah. issues. Well, they all are because let's they face it, they've, they've been suckling on the state tit for quite some time now. <laughs> yes, they have. And it's it's got to end sometime. And the reality, I think, of what everyday New Zealanders have been facing is now actually going to become quite stark to those who have been sheltered from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And mm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know why they didn't see that at the time, that this was going to... I actually saw River of Freedom last night, first time I've seen it. And uh, I was pretty wide afterwards. It was good. It was good. It was overly long, but it was very good. A bit emotive, of course, because it was an emotional time. But, you know, that's if they think those New Zealanders and the people who watched like me and you from the sidelines, because, you know, we weren't really down, well, I wasn't down there. If they thought that anger had just dissipated, they'd dream it. Yeah. yeah. It's hardened, in fact. And now the, the electorate's about to find out, well, the, main, the politicians are about to find out that that anger is palpable and mm. uh, it's going to be a very interesting result. Mm. Yeah, it will be. And I've had a number of people come to me knowing that I'm engaged in doing this, asking me, please explain, you know, the fluctuation within the minor parties, particularly the very quick decline of the ACT Party and the ascension of New Zealand First. And it's like, it's easy because it comes down to who's listening. Yeah, absolutely. Who's it comes listening? down to who's listening. And it's as yeah. simple as that. And you're right, there's, um, I know for us, for a lot of people, COVID and the COVID and the pandemic is over. But, you know, actually, is it? Even if you were fully on board with a lot of the measures, how's your business holding up? Yeah. Or how's your job going? Or mm. how are you feeling about what you're paying at the petrol pump or at the mm. supermarket? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's not over. No, it's not over. And what I realised last night when I went to this movie, I got home about half past ten, and I couldn't sleep. I mean, I was awake half the night because I was so wired and angry again. I was re-angered again about. I mean, it was great to see these people doing what they did, and they're bloody heroes, really, uh, for what they did, and we should all be thanking them. And I think most of New Zealand will in a decade, maybe, but maybe if we're all still here. But 
Um, it really wired me, and I thought, yeah, it's that palpable anger of being treated differently for not playing the game. And, you know, I didn't play the game, and uh, it was okay. I worked for myself, but you were a leper. You mm -hmm. were a leper. And hearing the things being said about us and for making a choice what to do with your own body or not to do and not agreeing with mandates and having some humanity and watching the media do what they did, yeah, it was a very interesting time and it was life-changing. Once the election results all solidify, mm. there will be a period of time, I believe, where the media and those in that governmental elite will have trying memory hole a lot of this stuff. You know, it mm -hmm. will be, let's soften the over the mm -hmm. the period of distance and it, it went, it's a bit like childbirth, you know, it really wasn't as, as bad as it <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. It's, a, it's almost like there's crazy lies and myths you get told. I don't know whether you're finding this at the moment. It's like menopause, you know. It's like the secret cabal, the, the stuff they do not tell you. The stuff they do not tell you. Stuff they do not tell you. And this is what I feel like this is going to be like. I know that my my husband especially, he's still carrying a lot of anger. He was like you. He saw River of Freedom, and it was so powerful. I sat there the whole time with a tissue, feeling like mm. I was going to burst into tears any minute. That's me. He sort of sat there, and several times I looked over, and he, he was white-knuckled on the mm. uh, the chairs of the cinema. You know, he I could see the anger. It was all coming back, and it was – Mm. important that we saw it and it was cathartic in one sense but it was it's amazing how close to the surface that anger still is after you know what 18 months since yeah uh, the I was surprised I was really surprised at my reaction actually I I just couldn't sleep so I had a gin and sat you know sat down and tried to do a crossword I couldn't concentrate on that and I was just yeah I was wired because it was a massive thing for New Zealand it was the, it felt like the death, the way the whole thing was done, it just felt like the death of something really precious, you know, mm. a, new, a New Zealand that I and you grew up in that we realised it just changed. And it's never been the same since, unfortunately, and it's a, it's a sad thing about New Zealand. You, If you stay away from the media, which is pretty impossible when you're a media person like me and you, um, but if you stay away from it and just sit out with birds in the trees and do some farm work or do something, you can kind of convince yourself that everything's the same, but as soon as you sit down in front of a screen, yeah, you know it isn't. I mean, you live in provincial New Zealand, as do I, mm. and I have certainly seen a frustration from those living in provincial New Zealand. I've never seen the urban-rural di divide as great as it is today. What about you? Yeah, I because I've got a foot in those camps, uh, both camps, actually, I don't yeah, I, I don't know. I, what I see is anti-farming rhetoric everywhere. So I guess, yes, it's media-driven at the moment. But the urban rural, yeah, I mean, yes, Aucklanders don't really relate to anything going on in Whanganui or Napier or wherever you are. Um, it feels that way. Uh, we've lost that touch with, uh, you know, we, we used to all have somebody, everybody had somebody on a farm somewhere or relatives, now that seems to have been severed. So, yes, I guess so. I guess so. But I feel like there's a bigger divide than urban-rural, and it's just divide between tribes. Mm. And, and, you know, I, I think there's less of less of that divide between, yeah, country and town, and more about they don't like you because you uh, like Winston Peters, or they don't like you because you like anything that doesn't fit the narrative. Yeah. So it's, 
yeah, it's the tribalism is out of control. And of course, we, you know, now we've got Israel going on. Um, well, from a culture's perspective, I've just literally spoken to Libby Emmons prior to this, and she's the editor in chief of Post Millennial. Mm. And she said exactly the same thing. She's never seen the divide between Democrat and Republican as great mm. as it is before. And now the conflict in Israel is a really interesting cultural phenomenon because, as I said to her, you know, the Jewish people and faith has always been something that straddles the cultural divide, mm. like the those in the culture war on the social justice side of things would like to use that as a uh, lever to strengthen their position. But at the same token, they will equally uplift the identity and the ability of those from Muslim or Palestinian faith. So you've got this sort of juxtaposition between the two. And then you have this conflict. Traditionally, it's usually once, you know, it's usually they'll press down on retaliation of Israel against Palestine or the West Bank, or in this case, Mm. Gaza. And now you've got, you know, this conflict that has come the other way. It is horrific. And how do you you reconcile? How do you reconcile people who are now going out, traditional social justice warriors, saying, oh, this is perfectly justified when anybody with a set of eyes can go, Mm -hmm. this is truly, truly awful. Well, what fascinates me is that People are not. Some people are saying to me, "Oh, well, I can't watch those. I, 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 I'm triggered. I can't watch those videos." You know, the woman on the back of the truck with her knees at at impossible angles and shots of dogs being killed in the driveways, and you know all the stuff. And I've seen a lot of it. Don't like it, but they say to me, these people that the but people I call them, but you know Palestine, but but if you're not prepared to watch it. I don't know. You need to feel that visceral, visceral pain and anguish and horror, and then it changes everything. And I think if you're not prepared to watch that gruesomeness and see it in its totality and see what it is depraved, then don't comment to me. It's like, it's like when you eat meat, which I do, and we've talked about this before. Mm. If you can't watch the process, don't eat meat. If you can't watch what we do to animals to get our meat, if you can't even do it yourself. You probably shouldn't do it. And that's the disconnect that humans have got now. This is just my thoughts. But, yeah, and I, what I'm saying to the people is, well, I think, you know, if it might be triggering, but that's a good thing because you're not seeing the big picture because this isn't war in a traditional sense. No. This is wiping Jews off the face of the earth and making people, this is just, this has just made every, everything's up in the air. We're just looking to see where the chips are going to land now. And how do you explain to people? I mean, I look, it's a conflict that's gone on not only for decades, but not only centuries, but thousands of years. Yes, I know. It's, so it's unbelievable. You, and it is just so heartbreaking. And, and as a, someone from the outside looking in, I just look at the entire thing, that everybody involved, and just think, wow, this is so utterly tragic for, for everyone there. And Oh, absolutely. And that sort of gets lost. And it's almost, too, the same. um, I mean, the political football that Russia-Ukraine has turned into. And again, those, I mean, I've got Russian friends and I've met and spoken to Ukrainians as well, just socially. And as they've said, oh, you know, what it's it's about is not what they say it's about. No, that's right. And personal on that. Yeah, and but it's, so that's that's the thing about war. You know, the first casualty of war is the truth. Well, mm. that first few days in Israel, that's the truth. That's Hamas showing you who they are. They filmed it. They filmed killing the grandmother with her own phone 
and stuck it up on the internet, on her Facebook page. That's telling you something. And I think this first week is the first honest week. From here on in, it's propaganda and bullshit. But that first visceral look at what these people are wanting to do, they hate the Jews. Mm. They want them wiped off the face of the earth. They've always wanted it. Now they are trying to achieve it. And I think it's a very scary time. I'd hate to be Jewish right now. And I really mm. feel for them. Oh, yes. So do I, 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 feel for, I feel for Palestinians too, of course. But, you know, Hamas rules the roost down there. And Hamas have, don't care about those people, which is why they put their officers under hospitals. And, you know, they don't care. They have a different idea about the sanctity of life than most of us in the Western world. And so, yeah, at this stage, I'm feeling pretty raw about all that. Mm. Yeah. Um, back home, of course, we've got yeah the aftermath to get through with the election. And we uh, it will be interesting to see how everything settles out once it's all said and done. Mm. I'm kind of hoping some healing can finally happen for everyone here. I know for me, I'm over it. I'm certainly wanting to try and sort of forge things forward. But it will. it's going to be a marathon, not a sprint, I think. And I think a lot of people, particularly that have been in that camp that have been demonised like we have, We've got to remember that. It's going to take a while to unpick and roll back everything that's actually transpired over the last few years. Mm. If we ever do. If we if we ever do. Mm. What are some of the things um, that you're seeing? Are you still got any contact with your mates in the media? Are you still talking to any of them sort of behind enemy <laughs> lines? Or, or, or have they all decided you're a bit too hot to handle? Oh, that? they've always decided that. I mean, you know, as soon as I wrote that column, they disappeared. Look. The only, I don't have really many mates in the media uh, anymore, not mates. I certainly have contacts, but not many. People don't want to be seen with me because, you know, I, I think that women are women. You know, it's a terrible sin to think that. And there's only one journalist that has ever apologised to me, and she apologised to me publicly, and I love her for it. And that was uh, for, for not being there for me when the shit hit the fan. And that was uh, Rachel Smalley, who I have a lot of respect for. And this person who's been into conflict zones, she's an adult. She knows her stuff. She's brilliant. Yeah, and, I mean, she's back in the media at the moment with the yeah. scandal Parmac. in regards to Parmac. Yeah, yeah oh, she's, don't underestimate her. She's, But she publicly apologised to me on Twitter and said a few months back, and I actually was very emotional about that because she is the only person in the media, mainstream media, who has apologised to me for not backing me and not speaking up. She wasn't brave enough, she said. And that's how toxic the trans debate is. Mm. But I admire her for that apology, and I'm I'm very fond of Rachel. She's great. Mm. It will be, as you said before, it'll be interesting to see what happens in regards to media and where things shake out. I mean, we saw the first sort of wave of that with the the, the fall of Today FM, obviously, and Rachel was was yes. there. Yeah, and that was actually awful. And a number of them have fallen on their feet. I mean, Duncan Garner stayed, you know, stayed on the mothership, as it were. But then he did something incredibly brave several weeks back and interviewed on his podcast to see Mahotra. I nearly, I couldn't yes. believe it. I was like, whoa. Yes. There's a that... change. There's a change of yeah. foot. People are starting to talk to the to the other side a little bit more. I think people are softening on a lot of things. And, mm. uh, yeah, well, they need to because the world, you know, the world's a very weird place right now and we all need to be, you know, well, that was the thing about River of Freedom that you saw. They probably had very different politics, most of those people, although most of them were Labour and Green supporters, but everyone was happy and loved each other and the big issue was mandates. And I think New Zealand's going to have to get into that too. Yeah, it is. I am sort of feeling a softening and I just wonder now whether that will continue with the change and... 
oh, we'll find something else to fight about. Yes, true. We everyone's will. kind of, you know, hooking into Winston Peters and I voted for Winston. I don't care who knows it. There's very sound reasons for doing that. Um, there's a huge wave of support behind them. And I just tell people that's what I'm doing. And and then some people get very angry because, oh, my God, you know, national, you've got to get national clear run. I don't trust them. I don't trust the mainstream media. I don't trust the mainstream political parties. So, mm. you know, we've got to do something outside the box. I've never voted for Winston in my life. Me neither. I did it. I, I, I ummed and ard and ummed and ard. And then I had a bit yeah. of a rant last week about it, and which I'm not apt to do. I'm usually not a ranter. I was the same as you. I, it took me a while to reconcile yeah. 2017. Yep. And I think a lot of people were in the same boat. The turning, the real turning point for me is I interviewed Casey Casado, Erica Harvey, and Kirsten Murphy. Right. That was the turning point for me. Good, good woman. Yep. Really good woman. To get Erica and Kirsten over the line, certain numbers needed to be reached. And Casey, I've always been fond of and her writing and her work with Hobson's Pledge. And I just sort of thought, well, there's no one else. There is no one else. If I want to be realistic about that party vote, there was nobody else that I could do. I mean, I'd been been an act voter for more than 20 years. Oh, this is a big shift for you. Big shift for me. My vote compass sits, I sit right on top of that. So, and that's because I've been self-employed for a long time. So, of course, the financial and fiscal policies uh, with ACT resonate very naturally with me. Mm. I'm also a libertarian. And if you're a libertarian, you cannot be for mandates. And David, he doubled down. He did, and I I won't forgive that. Yeah, and he's really kind of cocked up this election a bit, isn't he? He's running on some different fuel. It's sort of he's he's uh, pinging slightly, and yeah. Um, yeah. he is. He's just not. He's he's put the wrong petrol in the car. I think Winston's coming, and I mean, I saw him last night, and he was at the River of Freedom thing, and I thank God they had a footage of him there, you know, talking to the crowd. I just looked at what he said; it was completely honest and true. He gets things on a level of somebody that's been a around a long time, who's old school New Zealand. But also, you know, it was a double whammy for me when he, when he said, we don't want people with male appendages in toilets with women. And I thought, yeah, I've got to have someone that says that. Some, the thing about Winston is he's using the words WF, WHO, mm. and he's he's talking about things that other parties just won't go anywhere near. Like, they think that we don't know. You know, Luxon sort of said, I don't know anything about the WEF. Well, we know he knows about the WEF. You know, don't lie. I just think that he's saying the words that, sure, he might be untrustworthy. Sure, I don't think he is particularly, but I think they all are, really, in their own Mm. way. And But he's been a man of action at times, like the wine box and various other things, and he gets it. And, he and you know, if Luxon had jumped on the trans train thing, he'd be doing well, but he just didn't – he doesn't understand and he doesn't get it. Well, he's, I mean, this is the thing. National, I think, have relied a lot on allowing the others to lose as opposed to them fighting to win. That's it. That's it. It's a kind of an elite little thing. And he hasn't realised that he just, it seems like he just doesn't want to put a foot wrong, which means he's boring and bland and very vanilla. Fine. He's run a safe campaign. It hasn't resonated for me. I needed someone who wants to take on the, the rottenness that and corruption that we're seeing now. We're seeing mm. corruption in New Zealand now. We've always known it's there, but it, now we really know it's there. Mm. So I, I, I want Winston for that. He's a fighter. Mm. And what will be interesting too is how ne- coalition negotiations 
uh, settle out. Yes. And and again, the distance. And this is why I got angry about the fear thing. I said to Marty last uh, last week. I said, you know, what did him? Did Luxon and Chris Bishop go and have a beer of a day and decide? Oh, I know. Let's go and ter- terrify the bejesus out of the people and tell them there could be a second election. <laughs> yeah, that was actually nasty stuff. It was yeah. undemocratic. Just... It was it was a dumb thing to say. Yeah, really dumb. What I will be intrigued to see is what policy does get over the line because there are things, and I've said this conversation with some people around uh, the COVID measures. So for me, an expanded and proper independent COVID inquiry is something that if that happens, and I think there is a good likelihood that that will be one of the things that will stay because that's an easy thing to agree to is to expand that, and so it shows a point of difference from what was already there. But the mm. other thing with that as well is that he also threw in there the compensation for vaccine injured and those who had lost jobs. Now, realistically, we know that that will probably not happen, realistically. Probably not. However, what that does is it gives him, it's like, okay, I'll take that off the table, in order for me to take that off the table, I need to keep the COVID inquiry there, and I think that's the only, I think that's why he put through that out there. Yeah, is to is to give him some uh, some leverage in a in a bargaining chip, and also to the whole UNDRIP uh, pulling out from that UN uh, rights to Indigenous peoples, because that's just at this division now. Mm. I mean the I mean so you're in Wanganui, and you're like where I, I mean I'm here on the east coast. You have a really established Māori population. I have never seen division, not only between Māori Pākehā, but within within hapu of Māori here on the ground. I've never seen it like like I have now, and it's oh, really? really sad. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, I'm not so sure. I'm I um, I'm not really in touch with that. My partner is. Yeah, we 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 had a lot of Wanganui is a funny place because we had Motua Gardens portal, like I taught it now. Um, in ninety five, Ken Mayer still around? Oh yeah, yeah, he is. He's he's a really he's um a person that if you want an advocate for anything, you go to Ken Mayer. He's going to help you. He's he's highly respected here, actually. And Tariana Turi is here. I think you know many people have a kind. Of, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but I've lived here a lot most of my life, not all of my life, but I've come home anyway. We've kind of got to a kind of an interesting place actually because of of Motua and that battle and then handing it back and all the helicopters were coming and in the background the mountain was erupting Rupe was erupting at the same time and so we've been through some real big battles and I think you know I have a feeling Wanganui's uh, our race relations here feel pretty good Mm. but talking to Pakia, they're feeling pretty like everybody else in New Zealand feeling pretty bad about co-governance and pretty bad about well just code for apartheid really no one's worth two votes over somebody else's one that sort of stuff so there's a profound shift there i feel sorry for maori who are feeling that and but you know again this only all this stuff only helps the maori elite mm. you no know, let's face it that money doesn't trickle down to the people no and it hasn't but yeah there's a bit of intertribal stuff going on but maori have always had that yeah i don't know i'm not i don't know about it in my day-to-day life but i certainly feel new zealand's really feeling white New Zealand particularly is feeling very put upon right now mm. and that's not a good thing and what's interesting about it is that it's all white wokies that are doing it it's not Maori that are actually doing it I mean of course the elites are going to go along with it because there's money but it's white wokies telling everybody what's good for them and that's the bit that sticks in my core 
And it doesn't help that you've got people like uh, Rawiri Waititi turning around saying how he's not really that keen on democracy, but that's okay because he actually speaks for all Māori, so things will be good. Uh, uh, he, yeah. you know, he's, and their genes are superior. That's right. I remember somebody else saying that. I think it was um, somebody called Hitler. You don't say that. You don't say your genes are superior to anybody because they're not. It's rubbish. So that guy's on the way out. To party Māori's not looking good. It's sad, but it's he's it's too radical. Yeah, well, I look because of course I, f- I do follow a lot of the Māori politics more closely, and and as you said, you've got Tariana Turia over there, and mm. that party is it's completely unrecognisable from like the, the like party the of Tariana and and Dr yeah. Peter Sharples. People and, that I respected, yeah, even Marima Fox was pretty good in comparison, <laughs> but this it's like the Greens. I mean, I just I've got some choice words for anybody right now who's, who's voting Green if they. Come to me, anybody I know, and says I voted Green. It's like the door's shutting, man. I'm not really interested in talking about that right now, considering Palestine and Israel. And that was the thing with New Zealand First versus the Greens, is that New Zealand First says what it says on the tin. Yeah, it does. Yeah. The Greens not so much. Well, the Greens don't care about the environment. That's, that's no. just not what they care about. It's no. done. Actually, Chris Trotter said on uh, this on the station last week. He was saying that one of the things that the because the Greens have been really absent, you know, in the whole campaign. It's like where are they? And and if they did pop up, the person they popped out there and his wee shiny shoot suit and his sort of nice smile and oh yeah, actually I wouldn't mind if my daughter bought that home, you know, for dinner. Uh, was James Shaw because he was? I mean, he's the most normal of them. Because let's face it, if they're turning around and accusing New Zealand first of quote-unquote having conspiracy theorists and radicals, really? I mean, if you said that in the green glass house, one would not have to scratch the surface too deeply to see what the depth is. And it does concern me the number of new MPs that are now being swept in Mm. on the fact that those who are traditional Labour still can't bring themselves to leap the Overton window even to the centre. And so for them, the choices are to party Māori or green, and they've gone green. Yeah, and then 14, there's the gullible. So. Yeah, 14%. I'm, just, I'm disturbed by that, and I really hope that people start listening to some of their rhetoric, which has been going on for years around Palestine and Jews. They don't like them. You don't have to scratch very far. I can, well, Martima Davidson in that debate, oh, trying man. to defend Palestine. Yeah, just give it up, girl. It's just not a good look at the moment anyway. And it just was dumb. But, you know, it might resonate in them getting more seats than they've ever had. I don't know. Mm. That scares me because that's that's the that's the element of New Zealand that scares me. That the Greens are actually quite frightening to me. Mm. Quite frightening. I you know, I it's it's so sad to see the demise of a party that I had some respect for at some point. Never voted for them, but I've been close. You know, but the Jeanette Fitzsimons and the Rod Donalds, that law, and and even um, Greenpeace guy, what's Russell Norman? They were they cared about the environment, and this lot just this is not what drives them. Just they want a wedge here, and it's scary. So we've got to make sure they stay out. Oh, my nightmare is that somehow they get in. That's just my nightmare. Keep me awake scenario. It's cut your wrist time if that happens. That's yeah. how I feel about it. Yeah. It's the end of New Zealand if that happens. It certainly means that I'd be leaving. I do a satire every week called Aotearoa Farm. Dusting off the older copywriter muscle, Rachel, yeah. had, been, had been dormant for many decades. 
And I couldn't believe an interview when James Shaw was talking about the attrition. So on the wealth tax, and they'd built in an avoidance rate of 25%. And when Tame pushed him on that, saying, no, 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 I'm talking about the number of people that would leave the country, you know, these wealthy that that would be in it. You don't actually have to be that wealthy on paper to attract the wealth no, tax. Absolutely. He said, oh, no, 25% avoidance. That's what we're calling it, 25% we, we have built in to leave the country. So uh, James Shaw said that. James Shaw said that on Q&A with Jack Tame a couple of Saturdays ago. I never saw ago. that. That's terrible. Yeah. It is terrible. And I'm sure it sounded a lot better in his head before he said, said it? it out loud. Oh, so we're quite prepared to lose 25% of New Zealand's population do this thing that we want to do, which is a tax of envy, really. Yeah, so the 25% of our wealthiest. Yeah. And I just was thinking, don't you get it, James? That 25% are the people that pay the most tax yeah, more than anybody. Care. And, of course, the number that his people and, and um, old Shanana, he likes to put out there is things like, oh, no, but the, the wealthiest New Zealanders in actuality are only paying 8% tax because of their overall wealth. And it's like, no, 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 let's not no. play the games of mathematical proportions here, people. No. Let's actually look at the numbers on the ground. If you're going to take that top echelon of people and force them to become non-tax residents outside of New Zealand, so they decide to spend 184 days away from New Zealand and pay tax elsewhere. Yeah. And there are already some key families that have done that. Think the Mowbrays from Zuru Toys, just to name one. So they've yeah. gone. Who funds the arts in this country? Yeah. Who funds a lot of these charities? Who funds all of these organisations that are not getting enough funding directly from the government or rely on large donations? Those single big donors are incredibly important. They're less likely to invest and donate in philanthropic endeavours mm. if they're not mm. physically here a lot of the time. All the things the Greens love, you know. Yeah, sorry, dries up. I mean, you know, James Shaw, really, I know he looks normal, but I don't think he is normal. I think that uh, lying on your CV is pretty serious, and he did. But no one's picked that up. No. Well, we are now talking about it, but that's it. I mean, the mainstream might go there. My issue is that, oh, he had to be pushed to change his BA to say that he failed and he was a, that, he, that he dropped out, sorry, and he wasn't a very good student. But then, you know, just a couple of years later, he goes off and does his master's and gets it. But he won't talk about that. He's been asked to release the privacy waiver so that Bath University would release, and he won't do it. Why? If you've mm -hmm. got a BA, if you've got a master's, why won't you? We just lied once. You know, and you can do a master's without an undergrad. But it's unlikely, unless you can convince him you've got the experience, and he clearly didn't at that point. So I, I think he's lied. I think he's a liar. I think he lied about his CV. And people think that's nothing. I think it's everything. I think it's without integrity. You don't lie on your CV. You just don't do it. So we'll find out. It'll come out eventually. But he's, uh, to me, he's... Um, yeah. And what people also forget is that, and this is the concern with all these extras that are probably going to coattail in, right, is right. that my the concern that I have is they tried to roll him as leader. Mm. They yeah. didn't want him there. They didn't want him. And then when they went to their process, their caucus process to try and um, and their membership to the Green membership, well, he was kind of it because their constitution states that they have to have a as co-leaders, yeah. you have to have they have to be Māori, and you have to have a woman. You know, he's an endangered species as a cis white man. Yeah, he is. Oh, I think it's Māori there. Oh, 
Well, I, well, let's put it this way. I th- and Chris Trotter called it. I think uh, once they get through, you know, the dust settles with all of this and, mm. and the election, I think it might, it might be Bob I James, and you'll yeah. see Chloe and and Marima running the show. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Can't wait. I have no respect for them. None of zero. I I, I actually despise everything they stand for. So I'm just being honest about that. Cycling back to the writing, uh, give us just a little, some little sousance of what it is that you're going to be talking about, like some of the stories from uh, back in the day. That uh, well, so, if, if people are wanting to subscribe, what could they potentially expect? They'll hear about me, you know, as a child on the farm. Um, how exciting! But you know, getting into trouble on the farm, things like falling down the long drop when I was a kid, and what that felt like, and what it smelled like, and how I had to be you know, hauled out of the long drop by my father's arm because I was drowning in poo. You know, there's a quite a good story there. There's many stories. So I'm just taking, uh, moving to America at 11, what that was like getting to California in 1974, three, late 73, and what it was like to go to San Francisco then. And Ben Haight-Ashbury was just sort of winding down and there were gay cops and lesbian cops. And I, I mean, you know, before that, the highlight of my life was the Wanganui pie card on a Saturday night. So, you know, what that was like as an 11-year-old, um, I remember all these things very clearly. And I, I've been writing for years about these things, and I finally just put it all together. And and it's just a it's just a way not to talk about the world as it is now. I guess I'm just getting to a stage where I'm doing a lot more. Um, I've obviously lived more than I'm going to live in the future, and there's a lot to think about, and there's a lot to process about my childhood and things that I think other people will enjoy because they'll relate to it. You know, I was born in 1962. New Zealand was a different place. It was very rural. Uh, my parents split up when I was 10, 11, went to America. So vignettes about all that, plus my later life. I've been a PI. I've been a train driver. I've uh, stood for Parliament once, many years ago, ah, for the Labour Party in 87, uh, in the Waitotara electorate, which in those days was the safest national seat in the country. I was promised <laughs> that I could probably get the Wanganui seat if I did that. Actually got second, which was unusual because the Democrats back then were getting second and Labour was third. But, you know, I was a train driver, so some people liked that, so they ticked the box. So I was 24 when I did that. A 24-year-old lesbian train driver back then. That's it. Stop it. it. That's actually quite – that was very progressive of you for the day. It was. And I remember the night that I lost, and I was in Harborough, and Vin Young won, and he, he was a great man. I really enjoyed him. And he invited, you know, you go and you say, thank you very much. It was a good good competition. I had a beer with him and he said, you know, and Ven Young was very popular up there. And uh, he said, you know, you you want to be a politician. Oh, I've always wanted to be a train driver. Cheers. You know, and we, we just got on very well. And it was when you could be different. You could. And I got second. So I wasn't, you know, I did better than any candidate had done before that. And I, it was my electorate, you know. I was born in, in that electorate and I knew a lot of people because it extended from Harbour down around the back of Wanganui. And he was so nice. But those politics days are over where yeah. that, you know, you just wouldn't do that now. But So that was an interesting experience. I had the big bright brochure with red all over it saying Labour, nuclear free. You, you know, we're talking about different days. And, you know, so I was a good Labour Party girl for a long time. But, oh, man, they left me. I haven't left them. Mm. Yeah, I, I I was uh, talking to someone about this a while ago, and they said, "Oh, you wouldn't know. You probably never voted Labor in your life." It's like I lived in Mount Albert, so yes, I have voted yes. Labor in my yes, life. And Helen Clark used to come into my place of work, and we were on a first name basis. So yeah, I have actually. Yeah, I voted for Auntie yeah. Helen. 
yeah. not once but twice. That's right. When New Zealand felt just a bit more cohesive. Mm. So stories about that, um, stories about falconry. Of course, I've been into falconry for a number of years and I have regular, not so much in the last few years, but because of COVID, but I have regular trips to the States to do falconry over there and I fly eagles and hawks and falcons around and hunt game with them and that's been a fantastic thing. That's my meditation. Being in the wild and the fur and the feathers and the blood flying, it's great. And it's what they do in the wild anyway. So mm. they just you just have the privilege of being with them while they do it. And so it's an absolute honour. And the thing about falconry I love is that you have to kind of disconnect from the animal a little bit in that it doesn't love you, but it can live with you. And if it flies away and doesn't want to come back, which occasionally they do, they'll be fine. They don't need us. So it's a kind of meditative thing for me. It's that, you know, not being too close to the animal because it's a wild creature. It's not a dog. And or a cat. It's it's so there's stories around that. Just different conversations with people. Adventures, really. Mm. Adventures so, and accidents. Falling <laughs> uh, down the long drop was pretty probably had a big impact on me. <laughs> well, hey, it brings a whole new meaning to Upshits Creek, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Really. <laughs> so, if it people does. want to find uh, the Substack, where do they find it? Uh, Riding Shotgun Substack, put it in, or Rachel Stewart. Also on Twitter, you can just connect uh, on my Twitter bio. But, yeah, it's just time I did this because you never know when you're not going to be around anymore and you just need to leave some stories. And I don't have any kids, and I have a lot of nieces and nephews. There are stories there I want to want them to know about. That, and I think they'll be amusing and fun. And it's a, it's a different way to write because I'm not trying to prove my point. And I really want to do that now because I've got past trying to prove my point. Mm-hmm. I just want to be. Yeah, it's what, it's what right. I've said. It's what I've said yeah. to somebody about this job. They said, "Oh, how are you enjoying it?" And I was like, "It's like therapy, but they pay me to do it." It's yeah, I know. Excellent. I love it. Be yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, you've got mm. a great. You've got the best job in the world. Yeah, it's awesome. Happiness is. I think we're forgetting to how to be happy, and we've got to remember that, as yes. you said, you know, your your meditation as your falconry. We've got to actually take. We've got to take it back. And I yes. think we've forgotten how to do that in recent times. Well, I think Look, we've Rachel, got to take control. We've got to take control again. Of our own lot. I was really down one day and I went downtown and I saw this woman I barely know and she was having a coffee and she said, oh, you know, sit and join us. And there was another woman there. And she's, and, and I said, oh, I can't really talk because my voice is like, and I'm pretty down. And she said, oh, yes, and you've had some problems and blah, blah. And then she said, you just got to take back control, Rachel. And I remember thinking, well, that's easy to say. But then I thought about it for weeks and, you know, yeah, I just got to take back control because, and it's the truth. If you want your life to be different, you go and make it different. You can't just sit around feeling sorry for yourself all day. You just got to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, it has been great to catch up. You go well. And as I said, Riding Shotgun on Substack is where you can find that those articles. So all you need to do is subscribe to get those each each month. It has been good to catch up. This is Rachel Stewart here on Counterculture on Reality Check Rachel. A reality Check Rachel. Reality Check. <laughs> hey, I like it. Hey, that's a good new name, actually. Reality, reality Check, Check Rachel. Rachel. Well, because I'm really good at reality checks for people. So yeah, if you need a new name, go for it. <laughs> Thank okay. you so much, Rachel. We'll catch up again soon. Yeah, cool. Okay. Catch you, mate. I'm always uplifted to catch up with Rachel. It's refreshing to have a frank, honest, real conversation and with someone who can articulate what so many of us are thinking but too scared to say out loud. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what Rachel had to say. Email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio or just drop us a text to 2057.
This next song goes out to all of those involved in the campaign of New Zealand First. I said it on Saturday night, and I'll say it again. It's a milestone in New Zealand politics, being the first party to be elected back to Parliament without a candidate seat. And what they achieved in two years in the making proves that it can be achieved. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. Joining me again, it's so nice, double double dipping two times, Karina Shields in one week. I feel so privileged. How are you, Karina? I am good. Thank you, Marie. I'm rested now that the election is over. No, that election fatigue really got me, but I'm good now. I've had a rest. Oh, we were knackered, weren't we? Yeah, <laughs> we were the absolutely. We're so knackered. But it is, yeah, you're right. That election fatigue is over. And afterwards, we had a quick chat about something that you were getting up to. And then both of it was you, bless your heart, said, we should have actually talked about that. I was like, yes, we should have. So we're going to talk about it now. So tell us, okay. you're up to some something really good. I am. So in just over two weeks' time, I am taking the plunge and shaving off all of my hair. The money raised from that event is going to go to I Am Hope to get counselling for our kids for Gumboot Friday. And my hair is going to be sent off to be donated to Made Into Weeks. And so it is a ticketed event at the Pocket Bar in Greyland. We have got Mr. Elliot Ekeley as our MC. There is an ambassador from I Am Hope is going to be coming along and speaking. I'm looking at getting other guest speakers as well. And so once I've confirmed who those people are, I will let people know. But it is set to be a really good night and a good way, especially for me to end the year after everything that has happened. I've had so many offers to meet up with people that I thought I would tick as many boxes as I can by hosting a meet and greet and have people come along and raise some money for charity at the same time. Because I think mental health is a really big thing, especially for our kids with what is happening this year, especially that we need as much mental health care out there for our rangatahi, our tamariki, as we can possibly get. Yeah, absolutely. And the work that they do with I Am Hope is amazing. So yeah. incredible. And, you know, they've done it themselves. Yeah. They yeah. are all charity, not government funded, and their running costs at the moment are between 5 and $6 million a year. Mm. And to me, when the government have put over, oh, well, about $2 million into mental health, since 2019, not a penny of that has gone to a charity that does so much. That blows my mind. Yeah. And look, you have run some of these numbers in terms of money that was spent on the COVID response and the vaccination rollout. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Relevant money into to a, a cause that has gone and exacerbated mental health issues. Yeah, yeah. $120 million just to get Māori jabbed for a Māori vaccination fund, and we can't give $5 million a year for our children to get mental health care, to get counselling. There's something wrong with that. Yeah, there's something deeply wrong with it. Now, if people can't get to the bar to go to the event, is there another way that they can donate? Yes. So there is also a give a little link, and I am running some auctions. So there have been some really cool donors that have jumped on board, and we are running trade me auctions. The first one went up yesterday, actually, and those are the famous groundswell golf balls that have been signed by the co-founders, Bryce McKenzie and Laurie Patterson. And so when they came to Auckland and did the whole drive for change, I hit them up and said, you know, can we sign these and and make some money for charity? So there's that. There is also a Tiano holiday package as wow. well. So, yeah, there's a really great place in Tiano called Fjordland Lakeview Motel and Apartments, and they have donated a stay. And it's a really great place. My husband and went. And I went down there a month ago to go and stay and check the place out. It is fantastic, absolutely beautiful. And then there is a glowworm tour and a day cruise as well to go with that. We are working on a few other things to go with that package, but that one is set to be a really cool one as well. And then we've got um, car grooms and eyelash services and Another business is donating a $500 voucher and, you know, so there are some really cool big sponsors that are jumping on board to try and make raise money. Trade Me themselves have been really good and they're going to refund all the success fees from the auctions so that money goes back to I Am Hope as well and it's just set to be a really good time. Oh, that's fantastic. So where, so you said they were up on Trade Me now. So how, what's a good search uh, keyword for people to find that on Trade Me? Groundswell Golf Balls. Groundswell Golf Balls. There you go. That's yeah. nice and easy, isn't it? It is. Oh, sounds fantastic. I'll tell you what, because if you have, if anybody hasn't seen Karina in real life, uh, she has got quite the head of hair. So it's going to make an absolute glorious wig for somebody. Uh, so thank you. That is just such a great idea and a great concept. And of course, uh, you can follow Karina. Let the people know where they can follow you on the socials, Karina. Okay. So on X Twitter and TikTok, my usernames are Auntie Hey Hey. We are very consistent with keeping that name. There is also the Facebook page Shape for Hope, which all the details will be going up on there as well. So people can find the links to the auction, the ticketed event, and the Give a Little page. Fantastic. Oh, are you giving yourself a rest from politics this week? I am. It is very much concentrating on just this event at the moment and then I'm not going to do politics for a wee while yet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm about to dive in with my mate Marty in a minute and uh, we're going to sort of have our little debrief of how things are going on. So don't disappear, people. We're about to do that. So, But oh, that's why when you reached out, it's like, yes, we need to talk about this. We need a change of pace. It's a great we change do. of pace. So this has been Auntie Hey Hey herself, Karina Shields. Thanks, Karina. No worries. Thanks, Marie. This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey. Wednesdays at 10am on Reality Check Radio.
Welcome back to Media Matters here with Counterculture with Marie and Marty on RCR. This is one of those mornings this morning, Marty. I can just, everything is, it's been a big week and a big weekend. And here we are the middle of the week and I'm still sort of betwixt and between. There's the sun shining uh, down in the gay bay. The sun is shining. The sun is shining down in the bay. And it's been quite interesting. I am definitely feeling a glimmer of hope. Mm. And you know when you've been under a, a dark cloud for six years and yeah. then all of a sudden it's you sort of peeking out and you're thinking, oh, could I actually pop out there without being rained on? Yeah, can I start thinking about other things for a change? I know. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people who didn't vote for National but were surprised at, at how pleased they were to to wake up with a new prime minister and and I've found my feelings about Christopher Luxon have become more positive as he moves mm. from campaigning into a more prime ministerial state mm. of well let's bring everything back together and get on with the work I think a lot of New Zealanders are looking forward to getting on with the work rather than fighting each other it's like as a nation we've had autoimmune disease where the body just attacks itself and that makes it sick. Yeah, yeah, mm. definitely. And they're all now going through the changeover at the moment. You know, there are some of the things when you actually step back from the weekend and you actually look at some of the achievements, this election did throw up some really groundbreaking achievements for a number of reasons. The longest standing female MP ever in New Zealand history, Nanaya Mahuta, was rolled by the youngest ever mm. uh, new member of parliament with Maipi Clark. And obviously the big one was Winston coming back, bringing eight, well, eight of them total off the list back into the house, regardless of how things shape out with the specials that come in and whether or not he will be required for the formation of a government. I said it on Saturday and I'll say it again. I don't think people really realise how amazing, how groundbreaking that is that New Zealand first got across the line without a candidate, first time ever, and not only just across the line, six and a half percent, eight candidates, boom, straight yeah. in. That is massive. That is huge. And the amount of work and effort required for them to achieve that from New Zealand first, I actually think goes to show you the, A, the experience and the absolute stickability of Winston Peters and Shane Jones especially, that when that party was decimated after the end of 2020, they, you know, they didn't go anywhere. And he said that. I mean, he said that when he didn't retain his seat and they didn't retain their power in Parliament, he's like, we're not going anywhere. And boy, you know, you've got to take him at his word. I know that initially people were disappointed that it wasn't more decisive on the night that they would have been needed. But all the commentators that I'm seeing so far are actually pretty much alluding that once the specials come in, there is a high likelihood that, you know, the phone will need to go. And even if it's just on confidence and supply, Christopher Luxon, he's better to have Winston onside than offside. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mentioned this on uh, a political panel we did at the start of the week. There's been a, a real rollback in tone from New Zealand's media that reminded me of that Simpsons episode where Kent Brockman says, I, for one, welcome our new insect overlords. Except for um, yesterday's New Zealand Herald, where Thomas Coughlin um, just interviewed his keyboard. And this uh, just shocked me because I know 
you know, I know how the sub-editing process works in newspapers. I just can't imagine how he got this story past the sub-editors, where his intro, it was headlined, Nat's New Recruits, and then just the, the intro was, New Zealand First is looking to spook National into making early concessions before special votes have been counted, but National Leader Christopher Luxon has signalled he might be ready to call the party's bluff and wait for the final results on November the 3rd. And he then goes on to write a story that has none of those things in it at all. Luxon said, look, I'm, I'm not going to play the ne negotiation out in public, which became he batted away suggestions he could be prepared to offer Winston Peters the Speaker's role in return for New Zealand First support. There was no mention about New Zealand First asking for the Speaker's role. Then he doubled down a few paragraphs later and said, New Zealand First is looking to spook National into making early concessions, playing on the party's fear it will have to come crawling back to the negotiating table after special votes are tallied and the final vote announced on November the 3rd. Now, at no point did any New Zealand First candidate say they were afraid they were going to have to come crawling back. As I said, it's just... Cochlin um, interviewing his keyboard. Yeah, I mean, the quote from Shane Jones was, um, Jones would not discuss negotiations, but said it was a little like making a hungy. Get the stones red hot before you cook the tucker. He also urged patience and to wait for special votes to be counted. Yeah, and he basically said, I'd encourage everyone basically to look at our manifesto, obviously. Those issues have been very important to the party since its inception, but these matters will all be teased through when the caucus speaks, Jones said. So yeah, I guess we're not over the gaslighting from the media yet. And, uh, you know, they seem to be the media party that's trying to prevent New Zealand first or, or start a headwind against them being part of the government. You know, another thing I said earlier, earlier in the week is I wonder whether Winston Peters let a little bit of hubris uh, overcome his better judgment when he um, basically said to Jack Tame, look, I, I want to make a point of being broadcasting minister now, it's not going to be good for you because after that, the storm really started. That's when, you know, we were saying, look, we've read the same article written about 30 times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why they've actually blown in that the concept, the trial balloon of Peter's the speaker because that's the one position they can stick him in to shut him up. It's he the only reason not, they want I, him there. I don't, he wouldn't want to be a speaker. No, not in a million years. Not, a yeah. not in a million years he, he wouldn't want to do it. In fact, role of speaker wouldn't suit Winston Peters. This yeah. is in from uh, One News. Uh, New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters wouldn't suit the speaker of the role in Parliament, he said. Sir David Carter, former National Party MP and Speaker of the House, told Breakfast uh, yesterday, the job of speaker is to be completely apolitical and to be there to make sure Parliament functions. In fact, it's probably the most important position in New Zealand's democracy once Parliament gets underway. It's speculation that he's been offered it, but if he has, it wouldn't suit Winston Peters. He's right. It wouldn't suit Winston Peters. And why would you go through all that work to get your party back across the line to be stuck into a position where you can't do and or say anything? Yeah, we're well, politically neutral. I mean, yeah, he he enjoyed success because he's not politically neutral on on an issue, particularly. You know, we're talking about the COVID response, I guess, where all other MPs have either been neutral or for what Labor did. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, maybe it just suits the media that, that he's defanged in that way. But, oh, I'm sick of the media behaving this way. And I think I think they're starting to understand how sick of 
them behaving that way. Most New Zealanders are. It does interest me. There was, of course, the uh, pearl clutching, the expected pearl clutching after the election. Uh, I mentioned it with Karina and Di the other day. I mean, Chanel Lal, honestly. And then also Ali Mao and Paula Penfold. Well, of course, they're never going to be particularly pleased with the results. I mean, let's face it. I, I read Chanel Lal's uh, column. I sort of, if I can avoid doing it, I normally do. But just, you know, again, talking about misinformation, but never quite getting around to saying what the misinformation is. We've got the world in data. The latest figures from them are for August, which has New Zealand's excess death rate up to 16% above where we'd expect it to be, which is excess death so stable that you know a 5% increase is a significant thing that requires urgent attention. 16%? And you know all the while, the government's been sitting on data that shows all of these health problems segmented by whether people are unvaxxed or vaxxed mm. and they're not releasing it. What mm. does that tell us? Exactly. And also, do you think that there is a feverishness now from this group of people who took that immortal line that, you know, they will be the single source of truth? You know, if it is true if it comes from us. And they've gone and taken that and run with it. And they're actually now believing the golden lie. Well, I don't know whether they believe it, but they know that they're in in the crap if the facts start getting in the way of their good story. Mm. It's easy enough to dispel misinformation, particularly for people who are a bit adversarial or oppositional like we are, I guess, where, I mean, I've said before, I, I hope and pray that I'm wrong about the thing, the conclusions that the data has led me to make. I'd like nothing more. And I would uh, go, oh, yeah, I guess I got a bit, bit carried away there. Oh, well, that's good. The other night I went down to Central Hawke's Bay. I was asked to speak at a Rotary meeting. And I haven't done anything like that for a wee while. They wanted me to come down and talk about um, culture and politics. Right. You know, I mean, this is a Rotary group meeting in Central Hawke's Bay. So you can draw the conclusions, join yep. the dots of the people that were there. And they were... Lovely group. And these are the, and I said to them in the in the talk last night, you know, you are the pillars of this community. You are the foundations. Of they the really people. are, you're the, yeah. You're the ones, you're the doers. You go out there, like they had an arborist project that they were talking about. They obviously do as a community project. They were organising uh, a project that they were going in uh, to the prison at Mangaroa and seeing what was happening there. The questions they were asking were really engaging. The person that invited me, you know, really wanted me to, he said, look, they, these are really good people, really great people, but they subsist on a diet of legacy media. Yeah. So they've only been fed one side of the story. He said, can you sort of potentially show them the other side? And I said, of course, but you've got to realize that when you are talking to people like that, that. You've, it's baby steps, you know. I mean, as Lindsay Perigo said, you know, one does not want to spook the horses. Yeah. And so I talked about woke and the history of woke and where it came from and critical social justice and what that looked like and how that then moved into the current New Zealand context. And I used uh, the two things that I used were gender education currently in our schools because a lot of them are parents and grandparents. So they're starting to see that now. And that's the one thing that has popped out post-COVID that has been in a lot of people's faces and they 
uh, where did this come from? So we talked about that. And then we also talked about the rise. A lot of them were really interested in the rise of uh, Māoridom into Pāti Māori and also this change in Māoridom because they haven't seen necessarily this radical shift. Rodney, you brought it to my attention a couple of days ago. I've been listening to it. Uh, Rodney on Real Talk interviewed the wonderful Elizabeth Rata again. And, mm. oh. That blew my mind. Oh, honestly, listeners, you need, this is probably one of the most important interviews I believe Rodney has ever done. She so eloquently and beautifully Bentley. described the radicalization of thought of not only current Māori elite, how we ended up with the current Māori elite, and how the Treaty of Waitangi has been reimagined to Titiriti. And it is utterly powerful. And I, I just, you really do, you really should listen to it if you haven't. Yeah, just the process by which um, Richard Preble had told Rodney Hyde that he was having trouble getting the state services legislation or so, I think it was that, right, uh, across the line. And uh, Jeffrey Palmer said, oh, no problem, and just inserted, you know, none of this will contradict the principles of the treaty. And Richard Preble said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, it doesn't mean anything. That's the great thing. They didn't define it, and so someone else defined it for them. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and as she said, it only took a couple of activist judges and a few academics to say, well, this is how it is. And everyone just nodded their heads, went along with it. Yeah, and they were no off one to the questioned races. it. And, and there's no one's really pointing out the dangerous, combustible mix that we've got with, I guess, most New Zealanders increasingly. And I mean, this is certainly true of me. I think it's true of a lot of people. So much of what's causing us problems at the moment are based on lies. You know, whether it's that we can um, make the weather better if we pay money to the government or get bankers to print debt for our grandchildren, whether putting a Māori elite, giving them the power of veto over everything and passing race-based laws is not racist. And, you know, John Tamahiri needs to be called out a bit more on some of the stuff he's saying. I, I heard him quoted as saying... You know, there would be violence and shutting down of our major cities if there is a referendum on co-governance. Well, he might need to buckle in because that's one of the things that all three parties, National Act and New Zealand First in one form or another, loosely agree on. Yeah, well, I mean, I said at the start of the week, I, I don't think we can start looking at anything like a referendum on co-governance before we take a lot of the heat out of it and, and talk about our common interests rather than regarding Māori as a different species. And, you know, those folks you spoke to at Rotary, we've got to remember, these are the people that this elite Māori leadership have been saying, we can't wait till they die, basically. Yeah. And, and, you know, John Tamahiri said this on election night. He said, there's a shift intergenerationally occurring with Te Pāti Māori, Māori voter base, mostly between 18 and 45 years old. The biggest cohort of voters in the, in the country are the 900,000 Pākehā over 50. So we've got to keep our eyes on the prize. I thought, where have I heard that before? I remembered uh, another historical figure had said, when an opponent declares, I will not come over to your side, I calmly say, your child belongs to us already. What are you? You will pass on. Your descendants, however, now stand in the new camp. 
In a short time, they will know nothing else but this new community. Good old Adolf Hitler. And you're right, there is a lot of heat that needs to come out of this. One of the questions, one of the, I, uh, gosh, you, I, I figured I must have done okay because the Q&A went almost as long as the talk. And one of the questions that came out, which was a fantastic question that I couldn't have the time to answer because it was just too big, but it was around, so we'd been talking about, I explained to them the oppression matrix. So I said to them, look, in critical social justice, everyone is divided out away from class and into power. And I said, I hate to break it to everybody in this room, but you are all cis white men. And as far as the presses are concerned, you guys are at the top of the totem pole as, as the biggest devils and demons in terms well, of oppression. Well, most violent, according to Marama Davis. <laughs> Yeah. And so anyway, one of the question, this chap was really concerned about the disaffected Māori youth that we are currently in New Zealand and they, they're dis- disconnected from their communities and and they are at home and they're not working. And he said, how do we get these people? How do we lift these young people into a place that is um, part of community and society. Now, if you were Don John Tomahiri, he loves those people. He loves those young people because mm. those are those are little automatons to be captured and switched on uh, into the cult. Yeah, those those well, those are the foot soldiers at the front of the battle at the, at the battle lines. He he wants them. Yeah, well, that that was a, another point uh, Takuta uh, Ferris made. Um, who's a new uh, Te Party Māori MP, he said, our people are on their feet. Young people are educated. They're aware of why and how inequities exist. And it is the job of Te Party Māori to continue to educate our people so they can all move together to build into our people an ability to stand up and be present when elections come around. So the first bit, our people are educated now, sounds great. But the thing about educated people is, they don't move like a school of kahawai. You know, they go off in all different directions and do all sorts of different things. Uh, and so, yeah, what they're talking about isn't an education. It's indoctrination. Yeah, if you want your um, animal farm analogy, it's it's when Squealer takes the, uh, the puppies away and trains them up to be attack dogs. Mm. Yeah, it's exactly It's really what it sad is. because I remember reading a quote from a young Maori woman saying, the government wants me to fail. You know, there's that idea, Pākehā want, want us to fail. It's like, I want to see you succeed beyond your wildest dreams and being healthy and being happy and being in harmony with the world. And, and I think that, you know, when I talk about taking some of the heat out of the discussion, you know, just to be really clear, it's it's not anger at Māori, it's anger at the lie. If we're debating on the basis of lies, we can't move forward. No. It's something Elizabeth Rata said in her interview with Rodney, and it's at the principles of social justice. When you can control language, you can control thought. Yeah, and, and she was saying that she'd spoken with activists in the 90s who'd said that, and, and how you know, expressions like indigenous and ethnicity had kind of come to the forefront in the 90s as part of that, you know, neo-Marxist understanding that if you can control language, uh, you can control everything. And, and it's what you know, George Orwell alluded to very strongly in 1984. Mm. A and lot of memory holding. Yeah, and it just shows you how long this has been going on. Actually, you know, another example, she said, it's when went Pākehā went from a little P to a big P. 
it was in that time. And and you look at what's happening now. So Taku Ferris is the new uh, MP for Tita Tonga. Now, that is the South Island, for those who are not aware of geography. Now, he beat a Titakatani. And talking to Karina and Dai, you know, he's as Karina said, Māori are just absolutely fed up with Labour. They know that they weren't getting what they needed from Labour. Labour has let them down like they've let so many others down. But unfortunately, this is the one issue with the Māori seats, is when you have been so let down by that particular group, the void often needs to get filled. So that need for change is there. The change that was on offer to them was to Pāti Māori. Now, we have seen this swing in Māori seats before, and the last time it happened like that was way back, I think it was in the late 90s or early 2000s, with New Zealand First. New Zealand Mm. First captured about five Māori seats at that time. So it can actually be done, but that really just showed that there is a growing discontent within Māori. And this question that I was asked, he said, well, what, what did I think was something that could happen? And I said, well, there is a disconnect. There is a disconnect between particularly Māori youth and and their roots, and their hapu, and their people. And the problem being is that disconnection is so diluted now that they are looking for replacements. And the replacements are things like the Waipareta Trust, and Te Pāti Māori, and activism, because that gives them a place to belong. That has become their new tribe. Yeah. And that is dangerous because when you have tribalism at that level, it is almost, they've taken the principles of critical social justice, they have given it a Māori spin, and what you've then created is an ethno-cult, which I think is going to be quite dangerous. And how Christopher Luxon deals with this will be very telling because, as you said, sometimes the man can be a shiver looking for a spine to run up. Well, this boy's going to have to grow some balls of panamo, I think, in order to at least be a handbrake or a strength against this rising voice of uh, radical activism that will be in the house from Te Pāti Māori. And if there is any other reason that he wants to bring New Zealand first into the fold, it could potentially be to have three powerful Māori voices on, on his side of the fence putting their hands up going, Eho, no! Yeah. And yeah. Winston and Peters, Shane Cam's Jones and Casey Costello. Very, very well several times. Yeah, he, they, they are the point, the nexus where Māori and Pākehā aspirations can meet is in that, you know, I mean, he grew up, dirt poor in Northland in a family of 11 kids, but in a very strong community. And and in the rush to lampoon him, they forget that. Mm. And I, I think that's very significant. He pulled himself up by his bootstraps and uh, he, he knows the formula. He values education, not education in terms of our young people are educated now. They know that everything bad that happens to them is someone else's fault. It's whitey. He sees the enemy more as ignorance and inertia. The mm. nefts on the couch, as Shane Jones has said. And again, I, I do like to look at things through a compassionate lens. So I've I've not I'm always an uncomfortable with with these punishing attitudes to the unemployed or young criminals or even gang members. You know, I mean they do need to be punished, but as I've often said to said to gang members, it must suck being in a gang, does it? 
Because, you know, if you're in those sort of environments, they're so stressful and everyone's just so careful about what they say. And also, and this is something I've seen in older gang members, especially when they have granddaughters, Mm. they think about the horrible, awful things that they've done and regret it bitterly. And often, yeah, they get a, a, a humble, sad demeanor about that. Yeah. And Cam spoke with Kane Warren last week, who is the director of the Man Up program. Mm. And he's done a tremendous oh. amount of work in helping gang members transition to wholesome, well-rounded, holistic family lives. Yeah. You know a tree by its fruit. And you can't argue with the results that Man Up gets. And also just this Calvin Davis mm. worrying that if, if people, if gang members in prisons went through it, they might join Brian Tamaki's church. It's like, man, that's the least of our worries. The, the, the problem is that if they don't get themselves right, they're going to victimize a lot more people and, and often they're going to waste potential within themselves. Mm. If we're going to unpick this, we're going to need to make use of people who have reformed and understood that what they, they were doing was wrong. Yeah, and, and Elizabeth Rata explained that ex the, the reasoning for that so beautifully in her interview because the reason Calvin would have done that is that you can't have a program that is so successful with faith at its heart because at the end of the day, secularism is the new norm and social justice is the new religion. So when you're someone like Calvin Davis, you want to make sure that the thing that they're worshipping is social justice and they're worshipping government. They're not worshipping any other higher spiritual power because that just absolutely disintegrates the lie yeah. Your lie, the lie that you've been telling. So you can't have that. I mean, heaven forbid you actually, you know, have this program go into prisons uh, and be successful and actually rise up uh, all these men to become powerful members of their community because those will be the ones that will rise up and boot you out on your ass and you won't have a job. I think the thing that, and, and I haven't included this when I've been discussing my uh theory about what Kopapa Māori looks like if we bring it more to the forefront of how New Zealand's run. You know, it's rangatira, the chiefs who effectively own everything. It's the tohunga, who seem to have metamorphosed into the people booting science out of the school curriculum. It's the tutua, the commoners who remain ignorant and don't have any property rights. The References to Tino Rangatiratanga in Te Tiriti were about conferring the rights of individual ownership on all Māori in the same way as an Englishman's home is his castle. Again, if you look at the trickle down from these vast sums of money that have been earmarked for Māori, the trickle down to the tutua makes the uh, trickle down of neoliberalism look like Hooker Falls. And, you know, the, the missing part of the puzzle that I haven't broached is that uh, I think a lot of Māori leaders look at the gangs as their warriors. And there is that, ah, oh, well, you know, the gangs will rise up when the time for the revolution comes. And so when John Tamhiri is talking about setting cities on fire or violence, 
he's, I think, thinking that the gangs are going to be as stormtroopers, as shock mm. troops. I think it's worth at least bringing that up with him. You know, mm. who do you think's going to be doing all this? Yeah. Your, your academics, Shane Tapo. Old Shane Tapo had an about face as a real normalization of of the relationship between burly Maori fellas and uh, effeminate little ginger boys after the election <laughs> in terms of that uh, the normal relationship is that uh, one of them's flushing the other's head down a toilet at school anyway. Yeah, and the, the numbers were all gone from his and, and Chanel's uh, columns. Mm. Yeah, I actually, <laughs> yes. <laughs> they, seem to be, they seem to be back at the keyboard. Mm, yes, reunited. Reunited. And it, anyway, yes, they seem to be reunited with their keyboards. Uh, for how much longer, one does not know. There have been lots of interesting things sort of blowing up. And I think this this could be, this for me is one of the headwinds that I think Christopher Luxon will face. And it is how does he equalise that back? And I think that if he... He can use New Zealand first for that because they stoutly like to criticise the lack of quote-unquote diversity that he carries on his bench. But, you know, so here's another little quirk. I spent a couple of hours on Sunday going through with me highlighter, the highlighter and the election, um, where's my piece of paper, the electoral website, having a look at different things. Other than the fact that we've got a lot of seats that could swing with specials, Calvin could be out on his ear because he's only leading at the moment by 487 votes. Penny Henare as well and Tamaki Mikado, he's looking a bit uh, a bit shaky at 495. And with the swing in those Māori seats to Te Pāti Māori, and, uh, and from what I've been hearing on the ground about issues within polling booths, with them running out of special vote papers, so many of the people that turned up to vote uh, went on the rolls. Yeah, so they had to to place special votes. So I know John Tamahiri is not, he's going to be like a pit bull with a bone on this one. He's not going to let it go. So it'll be very, very intriguing to see what happens in Titai Tokara and Tamaki Mikado and whether he picks those two up as well and the whole overhang situation. So there is so many moving parts and trying to predict how everything is going to fall between now and then is a bit like a COVID modeler trying to get something accurate at the beginning of the pandemic. So we're not even going to try. Well, I mean, if you want another upside to Labour's absolute routing at uh, the election, I guess it will ease the teacher shortage. (laughs) It (laughs) should ease the teacher shortage. Get back in front of classrooms again. You're the most numerous occupation in Parliament, uh, just ahead of union organiser, although National are going to scotch the fair pay agreements. So maybe the union organisers will have something to do there as well. So I have to ah, admit, that was a po- that, look, as an employer, that is a policy uh, of nationals that I am fully on board with. So I really like to see that. So I grabbed nationals list. What I did is I highlighted all the candidates on nationals list and all the candidates on Labor's list and saw who kept their seats, who didn't keep their seats, who's looking a little bit dodge, what might flip. What listeners, I think, may need to remember is this is based on proportionality. For example, on national, at the moment, national has a proportion of 50 seats, and some pundits are saying that that could drop by one or two after the specials. How that makeup is made up, it is made up by the electoral seats first, and then if you haven't won 50 electoral seats, you then top those up with the list. Okay? Now, what... 
National wasn't expecting, and I don't think what a lot of people were expecting, is they won 45 seats as it stands currently. Mm. 45 after being, what, 28 Mm. last time? So that's massive. Now, look, I'll be honest with you. I think Tiata 2 will go back to Phil Twitford. She's only leading that by 30 votes at the moment, the national girl. That's the one Pacifica candidate that was close to getting in. Mm. There's that other article about concerns new government will lack a voice for Pacifica people. Maybe you should vote a bit differently, <laughs> just say. Yeah. So that then means that not a lot of candidates on Nationals' list actually make it in. And I have so, – so this just gives you a really good idea – of how incredible those electorate MPs are. Because so generally what happens is that if they really want to make sure you you keep your job or you get a job, you are high on the list, right? So that's how these things work. Christopher Luxon, obviously number one. Nicola Willis is number two. Well, she lost her seat. Mm. She made a good run for it, but she didn't win it. Uh, Bishop, number three. Reti, number four. Paul Goldsmith, he lost his seat as well. He's at number five. So they need to make sure that, you know, their key people stay. Meanwhile careering down to the back end of the list, the back of the bus, you know, the ones that may not have been very well behaved. You've got at 57, Sam Uffindell. They tried to sort of smear him towards the end of the campaign and he stood in Tauranga and won by an 11,000 vote majority. Well, yeah, that's incredible. From number 55 to number 65 on the national list, in all intents and purposes, theoretically, you would think that they wouldn't necessarily find their way back into Parliament. Every single one of them won their electorate seat, number 55 through 65 on their list. Meanwhile, across the fence at Labour, from 55 all the way through to 76, there are only uh, two. There mm. are uh, Fleur Fitzsimmons in Rongatai, and she's in a battle with the Greens. Well, at the moment, Julian Genta is leading that by 792 votes, and I'm picking Genta will keep that with the way specials have a tendency Where's Rongatai? Is that in central Wellington? Or? That, yes. And then you've got Reuben Davidson, who kept Christchurch East. Everyone another, else. Another striking example of Kiwi masculinity or Labour Party masculinity. Everyone else on that list, gone. Yeah. Gone, John. It was carnage. And so, of course, with that carnage came a lot of MPs that were losing their jobs. And did you hear? So they've been depart. I mean, you know, because the media are looking for fodder because they there's only so much speculation that one can do with a week of what's going to happen until these votes come in on the third. Oh, and so- they, they haven't been shy of speculating and <laughs> uh... so over it. Anywho, uh, one of the reporters has been out interviewing incoming and outgoing MPs as they're leaving Wellington because, you know, you've got to fill those column inches, don't you? And one I heard, did you hear Dan Rosewarn? Did you yeah, hear his said, comment? Oh, my Coro Club membership's not working. Oh, yep, and I'm Cry going from champagne, champagne to lemonade. Oh, yeah. Danny. Well, you might have to get off your ass and start working. Well, so I thought... Who is this Kozak? I mean, he sounded like a bit of a bloke, you know, and and, yeah. and, if, and I'm picking his possibly <laughs> one-on-one a fairly reasonable chap, right? And I thought, well, I, I need to look you up, darling, and see who, who you are. Club lounge. 
yeah, and see who you are because I kind of thought that it's touched on deaf, touched on deaf. So anyway, Dan is a very, very good Labour Party man. He has been, he's got some, some stickability. He has been hanging around there. He's run for Waimakariri three times, been beaten by Matt Doocy every single time, and he's tried to sort of switch electorates. That didn't work. He's been, had people sort of leap over him. Ex-army captain, so he's been in the military. He looked oversaw the uh, MIQ in Christchurch. So did a good job for Tom Just Thunder doing that for the MIQ in Christchurch. And then finally, finally, Dan, the man's patience was rewarded in July 20 of 22. He was the next on the list that got brought into Parliament after the departure of Chris Farfoy. He must have thought all his Christmases had come at once, Dan. Yeah. Oh, the they got that crew membership. I've got, I've got the boss's job at last. Yeah. So finally, all that perseverance paid off. Bless. So, do you know what they get paid? These backbench. Is it the, 165k a year? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder yeah. how much they give away. I wonder how many of them have got some sort of charity that they donate to to relieve them of all this burdensome, problematic wealth. I wonder how much Chloe Swarbrick gives away. <sighs> I don't know. Well, she'd be on even more because of um, because you get extra money for committees yeah. and portfolios and stuff. I mean, that, that's the money that you get, and that doesn't include the memberships and the cars and the electoral office yeah, and the, the accommodation allowance and everything else they get, the travel perks. No wonder they want to do it. Crikey. Well, I mean, that's and that's the difference between Labour and National is that National's candidates can actually go out and do something else and often make a lot more money than that mm. with the skills they have. And we do need some people in there with skills beyond teaching and union organising. Not that mm. those aren't noble professions. So speaking of noble professions, Kiri Tapu, consultant of chaos. I, I, I sort of looked at that. Right? From I, here. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just, just one of those people. Like when Jacinda Ardern's endorsement came up, I just got this sinking feeling in the pit of my guts. Just like, oh, I don't have to see that person again, do I? I couldn't watch it. Yeah. And it's Kitty like Tapu. That with Kitty Tapu. Yeah. So Kitty Tapu Allen has decided that she's going to best put her skills to use by creating her own consultancy firm to help businesses and organizations navigate through difficult times. Uh, so what I'm wondering is, is, is this actually a consultancy on how to get people grant money? Well, yeah. She's I mean, clipping the ticket. Because she certainly, I mean, she 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 couldn't exactly organise her own chaos out of a paper bag, could she? I mean, I saw you know National are going to scrap Tiaka Faora. Yeah, um, and all three um, parties are agreed on that. New Zealand First yeah, Act and, and National. And then it said Luxon is committed to scrapping the authority and giving its 170 million dollar funding to Iwi instead. I'm not going to say the name of the Iwi because it's unfair to single them out. I remember reading a um, an annual report from one, and it had a SWOT analysis. And one of the threats was the government demands more accountability for the money we get. And I've seen firsthand chairing a health-related board just the graft and waste in those uh, areas. You know, they do some great work, but whether that blanket, here's $170 million is just playing into more of the same in its own way. Mm. And they do, you know, and there are ones that do great work. I know during the flood relief, we, in the day job, we had a charity drive to get 
uh, funds and packs, just yarn packs, knitting packs for people who are really, really stressed and mm. just giving them some mindfulness to help them out during that time. And uh, we distributed them throughout rest home, marae, uh, community groups within Hawke's Bay. And I travelled back up to Gisborne to check on the parentals just to make sure that they hadn't been washed away in the tide uh, and make sure that they were all good. And I did my phone of friends with all my contacts up there. And one of them was the Haora in Tairawhiti. And they and contacted them about dropping some stuff off there. And that's the thing. There are some groups that do some really great work. And I and my girlfriend's fairly tapped in with stuff up there. And she and I said, right, I want to make sure that these go somewhere where it is actually going to make a difference. She said, I know exactly who I'm going to put you in touch with. Yeah, she said, I mean, there are those people. Yeah. They've got boots on the ground, no, big volunteer pace. They know exactly where all their people are. And they were brilliant, utterly mm. brilliant. But that's that's the thing. You want to fund them, but for every one of those, there's one or two that don't operate like that. I would say the solution is less iwi and more hapu. Mm. You know, when you're talking about marae, I mean, that's hapu. That's it's a, a natural level of integrity for Maori society. And I would say humans generally you know we sort of get about 200 people or something you, you don't i think it's up to 800 people you don't really need any sort of government mm. it's kind of self-regulating but once you get beyond that you get favoritism and graft and despotism and also too for those that aren't sort of up onto this hapu is is generally a wider larger family group but that group may be also community so you know hapu in community is that's where the strength lies. And I think many of us, particularly in the freedom space, have created our own freedom hapu. And yeah. a good chunk of the people that were here for the election on Saturday night were my little rabble of locals up and down the street, you know. Yeah, that, yeah our, our little waghorn hapu. And, you know, we all look out for each other and and we have each other's backs. And and if the shit were hit, to hit the fan anywhere and you need something, we, they're there. And we found that out during Gabrielle. Yeah, well, that, that's where I'm thinking a lot more rather than bashing away at national politics. I, I have been thinking more about uh, the Papalopolis generally and particularly, I guess, my little small section of it and thinking, well, why not just go around everyone's house and my street and knock on the door and collect some data and not give it a name, not have an online presence, just kind of ask a few questions like, hey, what do we do if the power goes out? What if we? What do we do if the water's no good to drink? You know, what what do we? You know, how how do we manage our food going off? All the things you talked about um, that you, you the, the waghorn hapu uh, did did so very well, and um, I think it's that kind of thing that will solve the division that that's crept in as governments grown between individual New Zealanders like a cancer, mm. and uh, you know if you if you can get I don't know why I keep saying eight families, but it's just the number that pops into my head. Maybe I like it. Maybe it's the Chinese thing of it being a lucky number. But if you get eight families, you can adopt one family that's really struggling. It's like, well, where's a family where the kids aren't doing well, they're hungry, they're having financial... You know, you could say, hey, I'm not happy with that existing in my neighbourhood because I know it's going to cause problems. And I'd like to cut those off at a pass. Let's... You know, you could have, you could do all sorts of things. Mm, you can Help do all sorts of things. Do a bit of gardening. 
Yeah. And it's also to having um, having the, the strength to just sort of say no. So a lot of these things that we talked about, again, I'm just going to reference this uh, Elizabeth Rader interview with Rodney Hyde on Real Talk, go to the app. You know, as she said, she talked about these things are just said and no one's, you know, stood up and said anything. And bringing back to the meeting that I was at the other night, you know, as I said to them, as Kiwis, we're actually genuinely genuinely nice loving people that want to do the best for other people we're, we're kind we don't want to upset the apple cut we don't want to to create upset or be negative which is also it's one of our most beautiful char- characteristics and one of our greatest strengths but it's also one of our greatest weaknesses well and when, yeah, but, and when that again, weakness is abused by people in critical social justice that think hmm, i'm going to say this in authority, it goes back to what was it, the Milgram experiments. I'm going to, yeah. This is this is what this is, and this is why I believe it is true, and therefore it is true, and this is what you're going to do, and no one sees anything. Yeah, or when utter dolts like James Shaw and Marama Davidson say, "Hey, there's all this money there. We'll be generous on behalf of other people," and and once you uh, you do that, it's just not the same thing. They pretend it is, but. It's it's not the same thing. It horrifies me thinking that there are kids who are going to school hungry in my neighborhood. And I think most people are like that. If, if you said, hey, there's a kid around the corner, they're really struggling, they're going to bed without dinner, it's like, well, let's sort it out. Yeah. And while we're doing it, you know, let, let's mentor them a bit into, well, how, how can we get you making a bit more money? There was there was a um, another bit of keyboard interviewing by Jamie Lynn in the yesterday's paper, he's talking about benefits being indexed to wages being cut. So yeah, National Party has promised to decouple benefit increases from wages. And so she's drawn the conclusion by the end of the decade, someone on job seeker will be fifty dollars a week worse off under national change nationals changes. Will they, Jamie, or will they get into employment and be four hundred dollars better off? Decades a long time. Will mm. they skill, get some skills, and have all of this cascading improvement in their life that will see them materially better off than just existing away on on welfare. And again, you look at it through a compassionate lens, the health effect of someone being unemployed is equivalent to smoking two packets of cigarettes a day. It's really, really bad for you. And it's not, so you can get right away from that, oh, these bludgers should work. Yes, it's miserable being unemployed. It's miserable having this terrible self-esteem that comes from being given something and not reciprocating. And that's a central part of Te Maori is reciprocity. You know, then they're saying, oh, you know, our our mana's um, decreasing. Well, it's, you know, maybe it's because you're... You're you're not feeding it and you're not growing it yourself. Yeah, yeah. Mm. On those thoughts, a couple of little positive things out of the news. I've got an inkling of what yours is going to be. <laughs> well, I've got a couple. Go on. Well, the uh, the no vote in uh, the Australian Voice was was positive, and I think in some ways an extreme version of what's happening in New Zealand. And I think a lot of Australians look at New Zealand as a cautionary example of what happens if you. Put these people in charge. I mean, there was a great interview Paul Brennan did yesterday with Tim Willems, I think his, his name is, who uh, runs unshackled.net. You know, there's a 40 billion annual federal spend on Aboriginal issues. 
yeah, the same tribal leadership that seems to feather its own nest and thrive on bad stats for the people. One such guy, Noel Pearson, his initiatives had 550 million. And it's, you know, it's interesting to think, well, what have you achieved for that? And so, you know, you've got on the other side, Jacinta Price, who's probably Australia's equivalent of Shane Jones, maybe, says, well, maybe there are some problems in Aboriginal culture that are causing some of their bad outcomes. Maybe we should look at those. And, you know, there are terrible, terrible stats in some of those communities. And I'm always suspicious um, about these people saying, oh, we need a voice in Parliament. It's like, well, why don't you focus on education? Same with Māori leaders. Why don't you focus on the fact that only 3% of kids going through decile one schools can read, write, and do maths effectively after 10 years in your unionised Marxist education system? That's the place to look because every bad outcome cascades down from that, whether it's health or imprisonment or domestic violence. And it also, I think, sent a very clear signal that those voices in social justice, which are much louder in Australia than they are here, don't hold the power over the people that they believe they held. Yeah. Despite, I think, uh, the No uh, campaign spent $7 million and uh, the Yes campaign had $100 million. There was a column by Frank Bongiorno, who's a professor, professor of history at ANU College of Arts and Social Sciences, Australian National University. He was crying into his coffee a little bit, but he said that the voters had to accept several propositions. Uh, let's take just two of them. Firstly, do Indigenous people need a further opportunity to speak for themselves? I believe so, but no voters might have taken the view that there were already Indigenous members of the federal parliament able to speak for Indigenous people. I think there are about 20. Uh, secondly, while there are some white Australians still prepared to deny the existence of Aboriginal disadvantage, even those who acknowledge the truth of it needed to accept that the voice would be effective in helping to close the gap. Yeah, given the long history of policy failure in this area, it was a hard argument to make. Now, I often... You know, think this, if, if we took away race-based funding, would Māori be worse off? How could they be worse off than over 50% of the prison population? Are they going to be more than that? Mm. The, the educational results going to get worse? Yeah. I think they'd get better. Yeah. The telling step for me on the voice referendum was every single state, including Victoria, the wokest of the woke, uh, voted it down. The only place where it was passed, the yes vote won, was in the ACT, the Australian Capital Territory. And I think that tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, the tide's going. I'll tell you something that blew, maybe I overused the expression, blow my mind. Uh, tell you something else that uh, really surprised me was Simon Wilson wrote a readable column. Well, he acknowledged the lack of omelette after all of the glorious broken eggs, acknowledged that the COVID response and the, the fact that Labour, which had as its brand that it really cared, didn't seem to care if their actions were anything to go by. So, yeah, I'm, I've got good hope for Simon. Um, mm. If he keeps on this path, he'll... Because I remember he used to write some quite good stuff, and then he just went full baby boomer thinking about Springbok Tour the way a crackhead thinks about their first hit of meth, you know, sort of just chasing that initial heady rush of self-righteousness and 
in ever more degrading ways. But no, he's, he's come good. Well, it'll be interesting to see how the tone of the media will change now that all of a sudden the teat they have been suckling on could potentially run very dry and a weaning may take place. So, yeah, yeah, it will be intriguing. Well, for me, the happy story was I saw a punter uh, went into the TAB. They were running a $10 million promotion and you had to, uh, at Randwick, they had a big race meeting over there, you had to list the top 12 horses in order correctly. It was a free promotion. It was one of those, I think they expect no one to win type promotions. And this guy went in, had a quick look. He's, as he said, not particularly scientific, listed as 12 horses, the left, and won. What did he win? $10 million. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Kiwi Bunter, <laughs> there you go. Well, my happy story was that Iron Maiden are returning to New Zealand, and I might go and see them. There you go. And you know if there's any Maori musicians listening? I've been waiting in vain for someone to cover Run to the Hills in Māori. Just putting that out there. I could, I reckon it'd go good. I might I'd bring I'd Tobias. Tobias of, might do it for us. Of Cora. I reckon Cora would be the band to do it. There you go. Another flash of uh, inspiration I had this morning was suggesting, uh, and, and work with us on this, Media Matters listeners, we should have a New Zealander of the Year, Media Matters, a New Zealander of the Year competition. I think that uh, would be a bit of a giggle. We'll start working on some categories. Think about some categories, actually, guys. If you can think, yeah, a, a Media Matters version of the New Zealander of the Year. So think of some categories, you know, whether it be uh, Alternative Journalist of the Year or uh, Freedom Voice or I don't know. Send us in your uh, ideas. 2057 is the text. Inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. Defying the memory-holding New Zealander of the Year. Linda Wharton, I think, would yeah. be in the running for that. Maybe Kirsten Murphy for all her brilliant open letters she did to Parliament and the police. Yeah, so uh, that, could be, that could be a bit, bit of fun. Watch the space. Watch the space. Oh, definitely. Well, thank you again. A lot to talk about. Yeah, a, a bit of a frazzled media matters this week, I think, from us just going, ah, I'm so glad it's all over. I know it is. A, it is a little bit of election fatigue, but you know, it's the thing is, is I think you get this heading into this time of year. But the good news is, it will be there is going to be plenty to talk about as we go through the transition with the government, and that will always give us plenty of fodder. And it will be interesting to see. Let's let all of us check the mood and see how things move between now and then. And uh, speaking of mood, speaking of mood, don't disappear because very, very shortly, in fact. As soon as Marty and I are finished here, I am going to be announcing the winners of The Sad Truth About Happiness. We have got some fantastic entries in, and I'll be reading out all of your happiness hacks, and those people will be winning a copy of Gad's new book. So thank you, Marty, and uh, we'll do it all again next week. Thank you. Have a great week, and good luck. Good luck with that competition. It's time for the Woke News of the Week. Today's Woke News of the Week is going to be all about your happiness hacks. If I read your hack out, you have won a copy of Dr. Gad Sad's new book, The Sad Truth About Happiness. These books are on their way from North America and someone from the team will be in touch with you on how to get these books delivered to you in the coming weeks. First up, my secret is to find wonder in the mundane, to be in awe of the ordinary. A simple cup of tea in the sunshine is all the happiness I need. The next one is happiness, present moment living. Absolutely. Happiness, simple, happy wife, happy life. 
Most excellent. Happiness, always be grateful for what you have rather than what you don't have. Happiness, being present and spending time in nature daily. These are all wonderful. My hack to happiness is tire smoke and gun smoke. One cannot generate either without a huge smile on one's face. My happy places. Happiness, three happiness hacks. I put on my favorite dance music and dance. I meditate and I help someone out with something. Oh, great advice. Happiness, a simple walk in your favorite nature spot, preferably with bare feet, which helps increase your endorphins and serotonin. Happiness, my never fail happiness hack is listening to my two dogs snore. Oh gosh, you need to come to this house. There's plenty of two dogs snoring here. Happiness, my hack for happiness is to watch birds flying in the blue sky, unconcerned about what's happening below them. That's from Neil. Thanks, Neil. Happiness, my happiness hack is listening to RCR and being reminded that many people want to save our country. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Those are some fantastic happiness hacks. And the team, Liz from Inbox, will be in touch with all of you about how we can get you your copy of The Sad Truth About Happiness. Well done and thank you so much for entering. Natalie, if you've entered her competition, will be announcing her books Friday week when she is back from holiday. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Thank you for joining me for another great morning of culture, politics, and plenty of opinion. It will be interesting to see what transpires from here with still so much left out on the table. But I don't know about you, I'm feeling a little bit more optimistic about where we're heading. And I know for one, I'll be keeping up my courageous conversations. Because let's face it, this job is cheaper than therapy. More of that still to come here on RCR. And don't forget to let us know what you think. Text us on 2057 or email us to inbox at realitycheck.radio. See you all next week here on Reality Check Radio. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR, RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio.